Hey, Canaries, this is Natalina from ExtraordinaryIntelligence.com, host of the Beyond Extraordinary Podcast. Hey, I just wanted to give a shout out to my fine feathered friends, Basil and Gons at Canary Cry Radio. This is my favorite show, my favorite podcast. You guys do an excellent job, and I just urge everyone out there to listen and subscribe to Canary Cry Radio because it'll change your life. You're listening to Canary Cry Radio. Here's Basil and Gons. Hey everyone, welcome to Canary Cry Radio. My name's Basil. And this is Gons. Welcome to episode number 66. 66. That's that's a cool number. Number of books in the Bible. You can multiply the two and then you get 36 and then you add six and three together you get nine for those of you who have listened to the numbers episode wow so many numbers speaking Um, of numbers oh yeah numbers okay everybody uh we don't do this very often but every few episodes we just like to throw it in there to remind everybody that if you go to canarycryradio.com and you just feel so impassioned about the podcast and the things you learn and how it opens your eyes to different things in this crazy universe, you can go to the support tab there. There's a place to make a one-time donation, or if you so incline, you can actually sign up for a monthly gift, I think of any amount. So if you would, as you listen to this episode, just be thinking about and feeling it out. If uh, you feel inspired to help support the podcast and Gonza myself, that would be greatly, greatly appreciated. And um, we'll A, keep Canary Cry Radio on the air, and B, keep Gons and I in homes and not <laughs> on the streets doing all selling drugs or selling any number of things. Uh, sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, also, you can buy T-shirts. Those are cool. Yeah, and you know, one of our supporters, William, mm-hmm. out there. William. Uh, he's been a, a monthly supporter for a long time. So shout out to William, and he sent us a picture of him sporting his awesome Canary Cry Radio T-shirt. And Which? I mean, he just looks better with it. You know, he's just. <laughs> he's just- He's got a youthful glow about him. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, and it arrived on his birthday too. Yeah, which happened to be Pi Day. So Happy it was birthday, just a buddy. good day for for William. I hope it's okay that we're telling all this stuff. <laughs> we didn't ask William, but sorry, uh, William. It's all right. All right. Okay. Here's one more cool thing before we get started, which is right now at this very moment, and it changes all the time. But right now, as I'm looking at the iTunes Top 200 Religion and Spirituality Podcasts, Canary Cry Radio is at number 147. Boom. That's like the top 75%. Wait. Yeah. We're in the 75%. Top 75% of the top podcasts, um, no, which is kind of cool. I mean, you look at some of the stuff below us. We have NPR Religion. We have Catalyst. We have Rick Warren's Ministry Podcast. One we of them. One of them. We have, I don't know, some other stuff. Yeah, but you know, our ultimate goal, kind of and sort of, is to dethrone Joel Olstein. Okay, Joel Olstein <laughs> has just, That's he's just been ultimate goal well i know but i mean in in the itunes sort of sense sure sure yeah since we're getting <laughs> caught up in all of the christian podcast uh well not all of them are christian 
you know, this is a it's oh, yeah. religion, this is religion and spirituality. And spirituality. Yeah, so this you, you got Buddhist geeks in there at number 49, and you got... Audio Dharma. So, yeah, it's not just uh, Christian podcasts, but nevertheless. Yeah, but what we're going to do is we're, we're saying this to remind you that you can go to iTunes and go to Canary Cry Radio, leave us a review and a rating, and, you know, help spread the word. That's what it's all about. Absolutely. And you know what? If you don't have iTunes, that's okay. We are on Tune in radio now. So if you have yeah. tune in radio uh, on your phone or somewhere, you can look up Canary Cry Radio and we'll be there. Yep. And we are also on Stitcher. So if you are listening on Stitcher, you can give us a thumbs up and help us out that way. Yep. And we're working on getting on all those other things too. If you have like a specific one you want to, like podcast player you want us to get on, uh, let us know and we'll try our best. Yeah. Okay. So that's enough of that. Sorry about that, everybody. Yeah. Enough, um, enough selling stuff. Right. Enough selling so, ourselves. Okay. They get it, Gons. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get to the good stuff, Gons. Let's do it. Okay. Hit it. at Canary Cry Radio, and I invite you to join us as together we experience a future quake. Today was the intrepid host of the legendary talk show Future Quake. And in fact, it was the end of Future Quake back in February of 2012 that inspired Basil and myself to start Canary Cry Radio, which actually launched on March 16th, 2012, which was uh, just a few days ago, was our two year anniversary. Our guest received his PhD in engineering in 2003 and served as a leader in a military lab for 16 years, developing protection technologies and other weird science contraptions. Since 2003, he's operated his own company, which combines technology development and consulting for military, governmental, and commercial organizations with his own in-house development of novel protection technologies. And we'll ask him about some of these things as we get into it. 
his interests include strange psychedelic hot rod and surf music and all electric cars which run on 120 volts from 10 car batteries and an 85 hp motor and i'm sure basil will pick our guest's brain on that front he's also made three movies with his movie production company which sparked fandom from all over the world uh, but most importantly, his passion and knowledge of Bible prophecy and all things about the future makes our guest today perhaps one of the highest esteemed we've ever had. Whoa. And he's currently working on what appears to be his magnum opus. And it's an honor to welcome to Canary Cry Radio, Dr. Mike Bennett, more commonly known as Dr. Future. How you Dr. doing, Doc? Future. Oh, man, that was, uh, was an undeserved, that was an undeserved introduction. Yeah. And I, I, I want to say hello to all of the millions in the flock of Canarians that are listening out there. Canarians. <laughs> and I, I can now admit that I have gone to the birds now. Nah. Uh, on Canary Cry. And it's good to be with two good buddies and brothers in the Lord here. And there might be even a few uh, emeritus Futurians sprinkled out in your audience. And I want to mm-hmm. say hi to all of them, too. Some of them going back to listening all the way back to 2005. Which yep. in internet world sounds like forever ago, but uh, <laughs> it's good. I I know I have been deep, deep, deep undercover uh, actually for a couple of years now, but I've been trying to be uh, very busy and doing something hopefully maybe of some merit. And it's I'm glad that you contacted me and remembered that I was still alive, <laughs> and uh, thought to suggest to drag me out here in the middle of the night to to have a little discussion. So I'm excited about it. Yeah, well, awesome, Doc Fuch. It's nice to have <laughs> you uh, <laughs> on the show here. Um, uh, well, you, gonna... you know, before before we totally jump in, mm-hmm. th- I know there are some Futurians listening out there because, oh, yeah. uh, you know, we have our ratings and reviews on iTunes, <laughs> and yeah. one of our one of our classic reviews was until Doctor Future and Tom Bionic come back. This will have to do. So, <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> there's uh, also there's also our one of our only four star ratings, which reads, "Good show. It's not as good as the old Doctor Future shows were, etc., etc., etc." So oh we're hoping that having you on here could maybe uh, yeah. spark some some more love for the Canary Cry Radio as well. You know that you really flatter me, and that really. Sounds nice, and I always appreciate the people that said nice things on email. But the more likely emails were the ones I got that said, "You're going to burn in hell. <laughs> and you're going to bust hell wide open, and you know yeah. I I hate you, and and worse." <laughs> and that uh, that was the normal emails that we got because you know every topic we covered, probably like you all, is was controversial. Right. And we only dug into the stuff that really just stirred the hornet's nest. Right. And boy, did it stir. So I'm always really relieved, you know, it, particularly when, when your mom and dad give you hate mail. You know, it's, it's gone bad. So I, yeah. I appreciate you sort of healing my, my... First of all, I just figured I was forgotten. You know, I was in the dead letter office here. Oh, or, uh, so anyway, I'm just uh, I'm tickled to death that uh, somebody even wanted to talk to me right now. And oh, you uh, appreciate all the folk out there. All right. Well, good, because they appreciate you as well, I'm sure. And um, there you go. Never forgotten. <laughs> good. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into some stuff here. Now, 
We just did a uh, a talk on nanotechnology, so we're kind of on a well. Personally, me, I'm kind of on a lifelong technology kick, and so to hear that you were involved and also, I don't know, maybe the proprietor of all sorts of cool technological things, you know, kind of got me a little excited. Um, so are, are you able to talk about some of those things um, that sure. you hold patents for? And, sure. uh, you know, I, I know that some stuff currently protecting police cars and race cars and military vehicles and uh, allegedly soon to include commercial buildings. What, what exactly is that? Now, you know, some of the information you're referring to, it's still generally accurate what you said, but it's off a woefully under-updated website, which was Ooh. my own. And I think it was last updated shortly after FutureQuake came on the air. So hopefully I can update it. That's not your fault. That's mine. But um, oh, This exclusive updates on Canary Cry Radio. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, <clears throat> shortly before um, I finished my PhD, while I was working full-time, and I, I married a dear woman from the South, and I was told that if you did that, that you're going to end up back in the South anyway. And sure enough, they were prophetic. Because as soon as I finished my, my doctorate the very day, uh, my wife says, let's pick up and move. So we, we moved closer to her family, and that's why we ended up in Nashville, Tennessee, right between uh, my family. I was up and raised in, in Louisville, Kentucky, and, and hers. So preparing for that, I recognized I was leaving a, a semi-cushy job for nothing. Mm. And in the kind of field that I work in, it's not like an accountant or plumber or anything like that where you just sort of – pick up and reapply your wear somewhere else. It's very specialized activity. Right. So if you don't have a place like a military base or some place special like that, you know, technical lab, to work, you're really sort of useless. And so I've always battled uselessness. <laughs> and uh, what I did was uh, uh, a few years before that, I had started tinkering on my own, and I had gotten approval from my employer to moonlight, and I started doing consulting work for companies like General Motors, designing technologies to put out fires on passenger cars. Mm, and I actually wow. did car crash tests where we would ran, ran cars together, and they'd burn up, catch on fire, and sounds try to put them out. Yeah, all sorts of cool stuff like that. And John Deere and, and different clients like that. And I started developing my own technologies, which up to that point I'd been doing for the, for the Air Force, and then they would own them. And so I started working after hours, did my P's and Q's, and developed things for a commercial world. And one of the first ones that I had patented that I, in fact, sold uh, to a company was something that became known as a fire panel, which is actually a little thin shell, hollow shell, that could fit on any kind of reservoir that had a flammable fluid in it, like a fuel tank. And it was filled with a special kind of powderized dry chemical uh, extinguishant that I developed. And the way it worked was if you had some kind of impact on the, on the tank, it would shatter this shell and a big cloud of powder. The energy for the impact would suspend the powder in the air around the tank and it would keep the fuel that came out from igniting when it contacted sparks or electrical sparks or friction or things like that that normally catches stuff on fire. Right. And um, it's one of those kind of things that's very, very hard to control the phenomena. So... It takes a lot of background and experience and some fundamental science to understand how much you need. There were some principles on how this stuff was done in mines where they would put powders on the walls of mines. And so if there was a coal dust explosion, it would kick up the powder 
and it would inhibit the chemical reaction that would propagate the, the, the flame and knock it out. So I, I expanded that for something that would be portable for a commercial use. Mm -hmm. And um, a company, a small business, became interested in it. And about that time, as they were deliberating on it, they, they discovered that there was a real problem in the press with uh, these Ford Crown Victoria police cars uh, because they have a fuel tank that's mounted behind the rear end housing uh, and it, by the trunk area. And so when they would get rear-ended, a car would suddenly fall asleep and hit a police car on the side of the road, for example. It would push the fuel tank into the rear end of the car and puncture the tank. And the car is very durable, so the people would survive the impact, but the police were getting trapped in the car, and they, they burn up. Yikes. And it was, killing, it was killing like one policeman a month uh, due to these things. And so uh, I set up a test with these guys where uh, I had a rocket sled test out on, uh, uh, I think it was a Goodrich Aerospace test track out by uh, uh, Grand Canyon. And it was on this mesa with a, where they normally would propel airplanes at supersonic speeds. It had an old 1960s truck, Ford pickup, with rocket motors mounted on the back of it <laughs> on a nice. test track and designed it so it would hit a back of a police car at 80 miles an hour, which is what sort of was happening in the worst events. And did one test with no protection, had a big fire, and then did another test with the panel on it and just a big cloud of powder. And Sweet. so that, wow. that video, it ended up on, on NBC. And, and then I won't go into all the details here in public forum, but uh, it raised Ford's eyebrows. It got to be very, very interesting when I found out the information they had collected on me, a dossier. Mm. And things got mm. very interesting from there. Uh, my <laughs> name started coming up on the Ford website, and I started learning how the real world worked. Uh, a lot of cloak and dagger stuff. Um, but anyway, it prevailed in that, and the police unions got behind it, and so it became something that they've used all over. And in fact, the first person saved uh, that was documenting one of these events when they used it was a canine a police dog. Uh, and it was caught on video, a police dash camera where somebody hit the back end. It was a classic case of where they had these bad fires. And uh, all you got was a big cloud of powder. And the dog, actually, you could see it jump out the, the window. And it went running in a field. And from the stories I read on it, they couldn't find the dog for two or three days. It was so sh shook up, but it was okay, and, wow. it, and it made uh -huh. it all right. And uh, from there, um, I started talking to some people I knew in the military, in the Army, because they were having a lot of um, explosions of vehicles due to IEDs or RPGs or the remote grenades blowing up, hitting the fuel tanks. And so I tried to design something that would actually remedy that with some kind of new drag chemical I developed called Black Widow uh, that actually absorbed. It was like it made a black cloud to absorb the radiation out of the fire. And uh, tested, the Army tested it, and surprisingly, it worked right off the bat. Wow. And it worked so well that they started putting it on all the vehicles. And through certain various reasons, uh, which are not uncommon with relationships like this, uh, we decided to part company and... Uh, the good Lord used that to help take care of me to sort of get my feet off the ground. And uh, even NASCAR used it some in competition. I got it approved by NASCAR and I actually saw it fire off on TV in a race. Wow. Uh, in, in NASCAR. Uh, and then, uh, but anyway, I'm sort of out of that activity right now. And uh, I have another device that's been in development for a number of years. It's tested 
operated with flying collars. It's called an N2 Tower system, which is what it's known as now. Uh, and it was bought by a company up in Toronto. And it uses rocket motors, uh, basically overgrown airbag inflator technology, to generate nitrogen instantaneously to put out fires in a way that's safe for people to breathe, that's safe for the environment, doesn't cause ozone depleting, global warming, any of that kind of stuff. Wow. And, and so, but it's sort of high tech and, and it involves some pretty sophisticated science, but it works. And wow. it's been tested in army tanks and worked with flying colors and aircraft engine nacelles and cargo bays. And its main market is for computer rooms. And so hopefully we're on the verge after a long time of waiting to get business ducks in a row to actually get production started and get that out. But to be really honest with you guys, for all of this stuff, since shortly after Futurequake started, I started getting out of the consulting work and doing stuff like that because I found pursuing a deeper knowledge of God's Word and what God was doing in the world, Christian ethics, uh, what was happening in the world around us in our future, so eclipsed that this other stuff I did in my interest. It certainly didn't from a financial standpoint. Right. You know, the, the Lord used that stuff to try to take care of our family modestly, and I, and I don't need much. I was raised lower middle class, uh, working class. I don't need much to be happy. And so it provided me an opportunity to start just focusing on trying to get answers and sort of questioning some of the things that I was raised in my culture from my church upbringing. And, um, you know, just getting back to the Bible and spending time dwelling on it. And uh, so that's given me that opportunity to do that. So. I'm basically sort of antiquated in that world. Yeah, and, no, uh, that's very cool. Doc Future, uh, protecting the boys in blue and soldiers and race car drivers and dogs. Yeah. And there you go. And now... Uh, now I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> Collecting dust, basically. <laughs> you know, I went to the eye doctor the other day and you had to fill out the paperwork, you know, and they asked for occupation and I just wrote deadbeat in it. <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't say anything. It went it's right on through. on record, man. Yeah. You're in the That's system awesome. Now. Yeah. Sometimes I write drifter in it, either that or deadbeat. <laughs> well, that's good. That's more than uh, Basil and I can ever probably uh, contribute to society in that in that manner. But uh, yeah, right. Until I get this time machine working. <laughs> the time machine, the, the, the levitation device. How's that yeah. going, by the way? That doesn't it's seem going like good, it's, you know. I'm just... Uh, just taking it every, you know, one day at a time. I'm trying not to fry my eyebrows off. <laughs> and um, okay, but real quick before we move on, I do want to talk a little bit about your electric car. Okay. Um, thing. Tell me. Go. Well, the first thing I had to level with you, since it's uh -oh. old information. Okay. It is no more in the future household. No. Uh, well, you know. The reason why is that things like Future Quake and other stuff that I was doing, church responsibilities and things, pro prohibited me from giving the TLC that a really nifty car, albeit with wet batteries that required daily attendance, it required a little bit more commitment for me. Yeah. Uh, Mrs. Future barely gets that much attention from me, so a <laughs> car I had to really work on. Uh, but, uh, you know, what a nifty car. It was a Miata convertible, beautiful car. And it had uh, 10 12-volt batteries mounted, eight of them in the back behind the front seats and in the trunk, and the other two up in the nose of it, and an 85-horsepower electric motor powering the drivetrain. And uh, I tell you, it could lay rubber. 
it would out accelerate any regular car and it it had a top end of about 96 miles an hour right wow but uh, it was a four speed and i you know i could cruise down the highway easy in third gear yeah but the the problem is any of them coming out right now basically yeah yeah the only problem is is that using the old batteries like that that are affordable you're just not going to get much range and unless you're really an expert on just doing, and they, they didn't come out with sealed batteries for those kind of batteries until after I'd bought my last pair. So you're constantly trying to crawl around and get in an inaccessible space and trying to water the batteries and test them and do stuff. And, uh, I've just gotten to be more and more lazy the older I've gotten. <laughs> and, uh, my, my brother and my father built street rods. And that, mm-hmm. that was there. They were more gearheads. So they, w- I would come home from school and they would have bucket T roadsters or Model A's or dune buggies, rail dragsters, just about anything like that you could imagine was in, in our driveway. One day I got home from school and I saw my dad come down the street in a six wheeled amphibian vehicle he'd bought. Uh, and so they, you know, they had that proclivity, but I was the book learning kid. So, uh, I, I the electric car provided me a little bit of time to get out there and turn a wrench and mess with it for a while, but then things just got a little busy around the household. So, yeah. And I found, believe it or not, a, a, an older woman who had built a Jeep, electric Jeep, using lithium batteries, and she wanted another vehicle, and she came and picked up the vehicle, and I'm hopefully she drives it now, and she she converted to lithium power. Cool. That's so very cool. Just hopefully don't catch on fire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that's good. We all got to have our pet projects. Yours uh, was an awesome electric Miata. And, uh, you know, mine just might uh, end up messing up the uh, space-time continuum. So, Oh, thanks. Like, <laughs> I, I, like I don't have big enough problems. <laughs> <laughs> if you see Attila the Hun running around, let me know. I'm still looking for him. Well, you know, it's sort of like mutations. People always assume that they're negative mutations, and they could be positive ones. So maybe if you mess it up, may, maybe actually I'll have a trimmer figure or more <laughs> brains or something like that. So I'll work on that. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to have one of those big, huge brains like they show in the old Outer Limits TV shows. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, this is all in due time, okay? So I'm not making any yeah. promises, but... um. I'll put, let me, you know. put me down for that when you're tinkering with it. I will. I will do that. <laughs> so let's uh, let's move into a little bit more about your journey getting into the wacky fringes of Christianity and Bible prophecy. And yeah. uh, I guess, like, what led to the start of Future Quake? Well, um, if you go all the way back to the Bible prophecy thing, I, I'm ancient. I'm going to be turning 50 here in just a couple of weeks. I mean, I will be AARP eligible then. Ooh. Uh, yeah. So I was born in, in 64. I probably had something to do with the JFK assassination because I was in the womb at the time. And <laughs> probably had something to do with me there. Classic. But, yeah. Uh, but anyway, I was raised in a very classic evangelical upbringing in a, a little small Southern Baptist church just outside of Louisville. Uh, very, very traditional. Not quite country, but sort of close to it. But good upbringing, learn the word good. But we didn't talk much about things like Bible prophecy. That just wasn't really the priority there. But one day, I think it was in 1976, my older brother, who's he's 12 years older than me, he and I were going through Kmart and saw a copy of the late great planet Earth on the shelf in Kmart. And he picked it up, took it home, and read it straight through that night. 
And he was just awed about it because this was the first time he and I both raised in church where you could actually see current events possibly explained by things in the pages of the Bible. And so he gave it to me, and I read it through the next night. And that started to generate an interest in Bible prophecy as just some new facet of Christian faith. And about that time, we started getting cable television. There was a fellow called Howard C. Estep, had a show called The King is Coming. And that was about the only Bible prophecy we would get on TV was from him. And, you know, a few other sources, how Lindsay might pop up now and then on TV. And so that was always in the background, always had an interest in studying those kind of things. But I have to confess to you, part of the reason that the Dr. Future thing came about didn't even relate to the Bible originally. Um, when I was trying to figure what I could do for a living, and I was doing my consulting work and, and had these patented stuff going on, and things were going well, but I thought over the long term, what am I going to do? And one thing I always thought was cool what were the people who acted as futurists, guys like Alvin Toffler, you know, that wrote Future Shock, mm -hmm. which in fact was one of our early guests on Future Quake. That was a real coup for us to get Alvin Toffler on Future Quake. But um, I always thought that would be a neat job because some of those people were, were used by groups like the Air Force and others on these blue ribbon committees to see what was going to happen in the future and things. And I thought, how in the world could I put myself in that position. I'd gotten my doctorate. I had some, you know, credentials in the area. But how could I get in that part of the field? And then these, the, uh, I happened to see the newspaper. Uh, I actually got the local newspaper in Nashville here for all of like three or four months. But as part of that three or four months, I have to see an ad that they were starting a new community radio station. And they were taking proposals from people uh, for shows that, you know, that weren't in radio. And I always had this background thing that I always thought I would have loved to have done talk radio. Because when I grew up, there was a show, uh, it was Wacky Radio, W-A-K-Y, uh, that was Top 40 Radio. And they had something called the Wacky Talk Show that came on at 2 a.m. And I've always been a night owl. And what I would do is sneak a radio on my bed when my parents were asleep. And I'm like five or six years old. And I would tune into this and listen to these crazy mutant people <laughs> that I think they would like open the, the uh, manhole covers and crawl out from subterranean and get on the radio. And it captured my imagination to hear this culture of people that I was not exposed to in, in late night talk. And so I always had in the back of my mind how I would have loved to have been a part of that. And so when this thing came up, I'm thinking about the futurist thing. I'm thinking about the thrill of doing radio. So on a lark, I wrote a little one-page proposal for a show talking about things developing in the future called, and I call it Future Quake. And um, didn't hear anything for six months. And I just figured that was it. And one day, I just happened to think to call the people. I'd hung onto the piece of paper. And I called them, and I just wanted to find out why they didn't pick it. And they said, well, no, 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 no. We, we like yours. We plan to do it. And you got to come down for FCC training. Uh, and it totally took me aback because I'd not heard a thing. And so suddenly in like four months, it was going to be on the radio. And so um, they met at this place called the Nashville Peace and Justice Center. And what I found out was these people were hard, hardcore, extreme left-wing hippies, rev wow. rev revolutionaries, any kind of what you would consider extreme. Basically anything that was not like how I was raised. 
Right. And um, people of all sorts of genders and gender types and, you know, I don't know what I'm meaning. So anyway, <laughs> I had a culture shock there, but it still seemed real exciting because you had all of these new people. Most of them, you know, didn't have a clue what they were getting into. I guess they're like me. But they all just thought it was a great dream to have their own radio station or this community radio station. And so... Believe it or not, I even got my wife, who's much more conservative than I am, uh, interested in the concept. And before long, we were helping them build the radio station out in the middle of the woods outside of Nashville. And this guy who was a podiatrist had a double-wide trailer, and he let them build a small room on the side of the trailer out in the country on a mountain. And we were out there, and my wife and I hung siding on the Radio Free Nashville, is what it was called, WRFN. And basically, it was just a plywood building, a square, with one room for, for the radios and, you know, the mics. You set on plywood, and then the next room was where the equipment they recorded and transmitted it. And they had a barn raising where they, people from all over North America, South America came, all hippies, just staying out in the mud like Woodstock in tents. And they all came and helped pitch together to get, this, get it on the air including that there was a 75-foot radio tower with all these guy wires. And one person was guiding them, and you had all these people on guy wires. And you would either pull when he told you to pull, or you would relax it, and he knew how to do it. And I had somebody on my wire from Ecuador or somebody else from Chicago and Seattle. And, and my wife and I had just left a very traditional church that was just racked with, with dissension, backbiting, just tearing up the, the staff and the leadership of the church. And it was really a downer. And then here we are with these hippies with no religious orientation at all. And they're all working together peacefully, working in the mud, working in extremely bad conditions, all working for what I consider to be a much more modest goal than what we would have as Christians. But they were working together. And, and it was really personified by how they raised this 75-foot tower by hand, just by having all these people cooperate and knowing when to pull the wire, when to relax, when to give way to the other people. And I thought, you know, this is the way the church is supposed to work. Hmm. This is the way how the Lord's church is. We're all supposed to run from parts unknown, grab a wire, just listen to the Lord, know when it's our time to pull, know when it's our time to give way to others, and let him lift it up. And so that was the beginning of a process, and that came from an unexpected source, you know, some of these epiphanies, uh, and it started having an effect on me. So uh, shortly after that, um, Radio Free Nashville was on the air. I, uh, Future Quake started the first week, and right before we went on air, they told us before, we, before, the, before the show came live, they said, you need to have some radio names because there's weirdos and kooks out there, and you don't want them to know your real name. And so I had to scramble for a radio name, and that's how I ended up getting Dr. Future. Wow. It came out at the last second, and even weirder was my co-host, Tom Bionic. <laughs> uh, but, but actually, you know, he didn't come on immediately. For the first two years, we had another co-host. By, he went by the name of Emmett, and uh, Emmett was there for the first two years, and uh, he's actually involved in our local church as well as Tom Bionic and Merv, the announcer, uh, and a few other people you know, Chris White's been involved with our church, uh, Chris Pinto, uh, uh, another guy that comes on Iron Show a lot, uh, uh, Mark Breton, he, he is a member of our church. 
And so it sort of helped foster that kind of thing. And in fact, a lot of the people who go to our church now came because they'd heard Future Quake. Wow. And are, have now been regular active members. So if you can imagine a crazy church where a lot of the people who came in came because of Future Quake, you can imagine what kind of place that's like. Oh, right. right. We're in the wrong place. We, we got to move out to Tennessee. And Come on. We got room. <laughs> have room. Living's cheap and it's good out here. Well, believe it or not, as of right now, our church is going through the book of Revelation. So you can imagine a lot of people are taking notes right now. So it's a good, it's a good place for a good, rock-steady, mature Christian leadership, and it allows guys like Tom Bionic and me and Merv and others to think out loud and shoot the breeze and sort of grow in Christ and hopefully do some ministry and helping people, that kind of thing. Yeah, what, what, just out of curiosity, what kind of, uh, what other shows were there when you started this, uh, you know, the same station that Future Quake started on? Uh, on the same station? Yeah, like what other, because oh, yeah. this was all, just picture what would be far left wing of NPR. Uh, <laughs> now, the, I guess the most interesting show that I found was it was a show for transgenders. Wow. Uh, and there was a couple men who dressed up like women. I think one of them was known as Roxy Fox and a few other ones. And they had a show called Gender Talk, and it was about tra the transgendered community. Hmm. And the interesting thing was even these hippies and other free spirits, you could see they acted awkwardly around them. I mean, you know, here's men dressed up like women with wigs and the whole bit. And, you know, for those of us raised in a very conservative culture, it almost borders into comical or farce because you've just seen this on TV, comedians. Right. And you don't really, if you, don't, if you didn't grow up in California, you know, San Francisco or something, you're just not used to seeing it. Right. And so when I was exposed to that, I had to have a little talk with Jesus. And, <laughs> you know, what I was felt was um, these are people that Jesus loves and were created in his image. And they deserve every right to be able to have a, a, an outreach and touch from Jesus through his followers as anybody else does. Right. And, and, and there was an opportunity. So I made it a point to overcome my silly stigmas and to reach out and just look at these people as individuals. And I found them to be articulate. I found them to be actually, except for their dress and, and that part of their lifestyle, they were very conservative compared <laughs> to the rest of the station. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, had done very well in, in business. They actually ran a farm out in a rural part of Tennessee, uh, ran tractors and everything. But um, we found, and I won't go into details on this, but my wife and I found an opportunity to minister spiritually during a time of crisis with these people. And it required us to make some decisions that we had to make some controversial decisions about our willingness to make our presence known with these people. And we decided to take an act of love, even though we risked maybe being misunderstood by some of our fellow Christians that we knew. And to this day, we don't regret it because there, there, there and it wasn't just the fact that we had ability to minister to them when they had a spiritual crisis, medical crisis, but it made a testimony to the other management of the radio station who already had a chip on their shoulder about Bible-believing Christians and had a stigma. And, and I have to say, much of it was well understood. 
from from yeah. what I've seen and heard why they felt that way. And we had an, an opportunity to debunk that a little bit without oh. selling out what we believed. Right. And okay. and so I, you know, those experiences started a process of me having to go back and sort of work out my own salvation and fear and trembling, as the Bible says, and and work out what what is the way on how Jesus would deal with people. Not the way necessarily my peers would or the people of my culture, but how would he do it? But one other quick thing about the shows on the on the thing, it was a just wacky uh, array of people. Everybody was just living out their own dreams with their own show and develop <laughs> their own culture. And, you know, you would just get off the mic and they'd hop in the chair when you're done and you'd introduce each other, pop up on each other's shows. But um, the guy who was a program director, uh, I could tell he was pretty far left wing. He had lived in San Francisco for a long time. And I asked him one day, he was talking about some liberal causes. And I said, uh, so are you a member of the uh, um, Democrat Party or what, what party are you a member of? And he says, I'm a Black Panther. <laughs> wow. And, and he was an, old, an older white gentleman, but he right. was a Black Panther. So that gives you a little taste of what the culture was around there. Wow. But, but um, we had just... We had a rapping fireman who had a show. He did rap music, and he, he gave fire advice for people. <laughs> That's uh, awesome. Yeah, we had a, a, a wrestling show that came on after us where this, this big palooka guy would come out with these uh, young ladies. I don't know where he found them, at, but they would talk, and they'd have professional wrestlers on the show and would talk about it right <laughs> after Future Quake. Yeah. <laughs> There was a show on right before us called The B-Side where a guy loved 45 records and he would only play the B-Side of records to introduce it to people. And he was a really, really neat guy. But, I mean, just every, you know, from Nashville gender talk to, you know, they had a pro-marijuana group. They had a libertarian party show. They had uh, environmentalist show. Uh, Anything that would never make it on regular radio. Right. Wow. And what the sad thing was is that Future Quake got to be probably some of the biggest listenership of any show there. I, I'm pretty sure the highest. But the program director became uncomfortable that shortly after the beginning of Future Quake, we began to have more and more Christian-oriented guests. Mm-hmm. And, and some guests that he thought maybe had some right-wing tendencies more than he felt comfortable. And it became a kind of thing where we tried to do certain remediation and it wasn't satisfactory for him. And we decided it was just best to part company. And I thought that was the absolute end of Future Quake. Uh, and it looked like we were just going to go our ways after three years. And on a lark, I just put out some calls to some legitimate radio stations in Nashville. And same thing like with the first, first one. I called back a Christian talk radio station to basically just get an official no from them because I had not, never heard back from them. And they says, uh, well, we, we considered your, your show. And they basically, they didn't know who we were, had no interest in it. But they said, uh, we've got an opening at 1030 in the morning or, or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Which would you like? <laughs> wow. And so we took a 4 o'clock drive time slot every day. And, and for the, I don't know, three years or so we were on the air, never charged us a penny. Wow. wow. Never charged us a penny. We had a drive time slot, Future Quake. And so if you could imagine the teeming masses going through downtown Nashville, coming home, they're flipping the channels. All of a sudden, they hear the crazy stuff we're talking about on the radio. <laughs> right. And we were, co- we were going way up into Kentucky, down into Alabama with the signal. We were covering a lot of places. And it was like the main traditional, very fundamentalist 
Christian talk. It was all it was all syndicated stuff like Dr. Dobson, right. and D. James mm-hmm. Kennedy, all these this the normal people. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> and in fact, that the show right before us was Janet Parshall, which was very hardcore neocon, very, very pro war, very pro America occupying everything and blah blah blah, that whole right. thing. And then here comes Future Quake for a half hour. <laughs> That's and really, was, really funny. And, and, you know, we didn't know what they were going to air then. or You know, I produced the shows in advance. And, and actually, they didn't have a studio because everything was nationally produced. So Future Quake was produced out of a bedroom in my house. And all of these famous stars like uh, Jesse Ventura and Andrew Napolitano and others were interviewed via Skype. You know, you can relate. That's what we're doing right now. Yeah. But, but that was done then. And, uh, you know, I, I learned that stuff from uh, the Gilberts on PID Radio. You know, they were starting to do that kind of stuff. And they were right. a little ahead of their time. And so I finally started picking up on that and, and doing it. But, but and I just uploaded on the Internet. And next thing, you're driving in the car and turn it on, and there it is. Um, and um, obviously, that increased our listenership dramatically, too. And so yeah. we, were, we, were, we had about, at that time... They, they were saying about 35,000 listeners over the radio show, and then we had about another 35,000, almost the identical amount on the Internet, and we could track that. So that was sort of the, the glory years. Cool. Wow. That's very cool. That yeah, that is a motley crew to come from for oh. Future Quake to first uh, be originated with. And it was, a, it was a good way to loosen me up, open my eyes, learn how to love people differently. I right. mean, I, people were so cookie cutter in the culture where I came from. It looked like we all came out of the same mold. Right. <laughs> and, and now, and now those, you know, those kind of people sort of bore me to tears. You uh-huh. know, the, there's a point when someone can be so different than you culturally that you, you get a little uncomfortable. But right. I have a deeper appreciation now. And the Internet, you know, like your show and other kind of stuff, to be exposed to people that I would have never met in a million years, to compare notes, to learn from each other. Right. You know, learn from our different backgrounds, man. It's it's just a a golden period, and the the the, the techniques. And that's true for all your listeners out there. A lot of them should probably be starting their own shows too. All the technology is there with you know a, a little bit of time and, and in knowledge you can do it. The challenge is finding good content, right? Content yeah. that's worth listening, and not uh, you know not something where you've got a little bit of content and then before long you're going to jump the shark. Right, and try to, <laughs> just to keep the show going. You know? I'm so happy you used that phrase. <laughs> well, you know what I mean. I'll explain. Any of your listeners don't understand. Jumping the shark relates back to an old Happy Days <laughs> yes. episode. After many, many years, it went way past its prime. And to try to keep something new on the show, they had an incident where Fonzie ended up having to go water skiing, and he jumped on a ramp and jumped over a shark. And that was coined the term of when a show has gone on too long, and it's Doing too many weird things to try to keep an audience. Yeah, nobody. <laughs> There's like, okay, that's enough. Just and I, <laughs> and I would, I would allege that ninety five percent of Christian media jumped the shark a long time ago. Yeah, no, yeah. it's it's a really good point as well as a really good phrase. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that we wanted to to know oh, from you one, was one other quick thing on that. Sure, this is an important spiritual point. Okay. Uh, another thing related to sh- jumping the shark is that they say any kind of show on television that gets Ted McGinty as an actor 
means it's going to get canceled probably in the next year or two. <laughs> <laughs> Ted McGinty, I think you probably remember him married with children. He's one of these guys that looks like a jock. Yeah. He's sort of well-built kind of guy. He's probably really old now, you know, nursing home. But, but anytime you saw him, it was usually the last season of a show, and they tried to keep it alive. So Ted McGinty, if you look up him in any show, you'll, you'll find out. That's when they knew it was about over. Oh, so, God. Dr. Future is sort of like that for internet radio shows. When he appears on a show, it's about done. <laughs> well, Ted McGinty, I just looked him up. He's, uh, he was the uh, Jefferson Darcy, right? And married with children. The neighbor. Yes, that's right. Oh, yeah. right. And, and, and millions of other shows. I think he was on the end of Happy Days, too, like <laughs> one of the brothers or something like that. Oh, but he was a replacement on Married with Children, if I'm not mistaken, or something, right? Because he wasn't the original. He's always uh, a replacement. <laughs> <laughs> always as a replacement. They'll throw him in there when they want to get one more season out so they can get syndication. Ted, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, so so, if you're listening, Ted, we're sorry. Also, uh, if you want to the show, give us an email. Well, just tell him that Dr. Future has now replaced him as the... The jumping the shark guest. Um, just out of curiosity, you know, you've already sort of spoken about how Future Quake, just in its inception, started to change your perception of, you know, yeah. just the world. Uh, but throughout the course of the show, how did it change? How did it evolve your your worldview and your Christianity? How did it evolve into? You know, obviously, I don't know if you were talking about stuff like the Nephilim and, you know, Genesis 6 and all that stuff at the beginning. Did that evolve or was that something that came about naturally just from the guests you had? Or how did that whole area come into play? Well, it sounds like we can start getting into the era of where I can start saying controversial things and alienate some of your listeners and get them <laughs> to start to burn effigies of me before we're done. So oh, they're into we'll, that. So we'll start okay. veering in that direction. Um <laughs> Actually, when Future Quake started, again, I had this angle about doing stuff about just what the future was. You know, and nobody knew who I was. And I had to sort of plead to have some professors on locally come on and talk about what was going to happen to energy supplies and water and a change in our communities. And I got Alvin Toffler on. That, that was a really big deal. But just trying to do that. But then I started trying to get a little bit some Christian topics. But that really didn't take off until a few months after I started Future Quake. Uh, that started in April 2005, and in July 4th weekend of 2005, I made a momentous trip to the Ancient of Days conference in Roswell, New Mexico. Mm. And that, that almost goes down in mythic status to me. That's, that was with, uh, was David Flynn there and Mike yeah. Kaiser and uh, it, it Guy was, Malone? It was the Mount Olympus of weirdness. Right. Okay. <laughs> right. It was at the Parthenon. Um, you know, and, and Roswell is such an intriguing place to have these people in that discussion. And I can remember going out, having, having never been there before, didn't really know much about UFOs, to be honest with you. It hadn't been something that I'd really pursued or anything. But I went out there and I took a, a friend of mine who was actually my best ma uh, man at my wedding and had known him since college, quite a bit older than me, but a very, very traditional Christian. Wonderful Christian man, uh, but involved in the Episcopal Church. You know, not into the weirdness. And I thought this would be an interesting experience to gather and sort of bounce these ideas because I had just started hearing about stuff. Actually, I think I remember seeing Peter Goodgame's website around the mid-90s, probably at work when I was supposed to be doing real work at the Air Force Base <laughs> and saw Red Moon Rising. 
and, and also David Flynn's Watcher website sometimes. Right. And they were they were you know groundbreaking uh, Christian weirdness websites back then. And so um, I don't even know how I even found out about the conference. Somehow I did. And I knew a few of the people had heard about, maybe had heard them on Coast to Coast with George Norrie or with Art Bell. Mm-hmm. And so I went out there just, just wondering what it was really like. And it turned out this was a, this conference had, it was not the very first one. Uh, I think Richard Hoagland had come the year before, which would have been cool to see. But, mm, but yeah. this one had William Schnoblin, oh, probably wow. the most far out guy of the whole crew. Right. Mike Heiser speaking. David Flynn. Um, oh, let, let me think who the other ones are. Oh, um, the anti-gravity guy. I just thought of his name. Stan Deo. Stan Deo spoke there. Um, oh, uh, Patrick Heron. Oh, wow. Mr. Mr. Uh, Nephilim uh, guy. And uh, Guy Malone. Um, the most hated man in ufology. What's his name? Uh, it used to work with Guy Malone on the stuff. I keep thinking. Oh, of Joe stuff. Jordan. Joe Jordan. He spoke. So you could see what a momentous gathering this was. Yeah. I mean, there was shofar blowing. There was the whole thing going on there. <laughs> and, you know, I wasn't used to any of this. You know, coming right out of the Baptist church, just checking the stuff out. And um, I saw some real spiritual warfare going on. One of my favorite memories was when Mike Kaiser, you know, who's this esteemed scholar, that began to speak about the divine council and the Genesis six, uh, Nephilim, which was a new thing for me then. I mean, that's always new. And he started speaking and there was this guy sitting in front of us. His name was Grambo, the prophet, he called himself. And he was an old man with Bermuda shorts and black socks. <laughs> and I remember him when Mike Hazard started talking, he, he started yelling out lies. It's all lies. Wow. And so, um, I, I will recite that to Mike Kaiser occasionally, just to <laughs> fill in for Grambo the Prophet. But uh, Grambo the Prophet made some uh, comments that were easily construed to be racist in nature. Mm-hmm. And I began having a little debate with him, or not a debate, but sort of like I do on Future Quake, uh, sort of a, a, a elaborating on his thoughts that really exposed the, uh, the dark nature of them, but he was unaware of it. Right. But but the one gentleman who was who just started discussing it with me, I happened to find out was Peter Goodgame, and Peter Goodgame was sitting in the audience, and so we started comparing our notes about you know end times and the possibility of Nimrod being the Antichrist, and both he and I were leading that direction, and so I developed a rapport with him, and, and then we had and we had New Age people come, we had witches come over, there was spiritual warfare going on. Uh, which they picked the wrong crowd to pick with those guys on the stage to pick up in spiritual warfare. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, they were doing deliverance for people. There were, there were some people that were affiliated with that group that they even had their parents show up there worried that they had gotten involved in a cult. <laughs> and wow. so I had an opportunity to minister to them and just to calm them down and show, look, you know, these guys are serious about the Bible. And, you know, some reconciliation went on. Ministry went on. I guess is what I'm saying. In yeah. the middle of this conference of weirdness, there was actually practical ministry that went on with people. People were healed, reconciled, brought closer to the Lord. And that told me that there was something of merit spiritually, even from talking about the weirdness. Right. And so I went back a different person. Plus, people finally knew who I was. You know, I had my Future Quake shirt on there. I collected their cards and phone numbers and uh, started having these people on the show. 
And that really started setting the tone for future Quake at that part. And it really developed our reputation, even though in the last few years, I think I started drifting away from the most extreme weirdness, at least the last six months or so. But the die was cast already. Future Quake became the stop to come hear some of the most extreme, mind-challenging kind of stuff. You know, a lot of it may turn out in time to be hokum, uh, but at least people had a chance to consider it. Right. And I, right. I saw a real merit to have a, a discussion amongst Christians about stuff that would never find the light of day behind a pulpit. Amen. And yeah. That's why I think it's a merit for us to have a free discussion as long as people behave themselves and don't act like idiots. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, use a little bit of understanding, you know, let people have their say. If you don't agree with what they're saying, that's cool. And in fact, you can even question it and stuff, but let's not get ugly. Right. Uh, right. I saw people get mean and ugly, and a lot of it was vindictiveness. Even people who were trying to what they thought was defending true doctrine and the faith, it was how they did it was the problem. Right. Right. Uh, you know, you can let somebody have their say and be gracious to them while still clinging to your own beliefs. And you don't have to humiliate them in front of a national audience. Don't I know? It it doesn't, it doesn't need, you know, the Lord doesn't need that kind of defense for somebody who's got to be taken apart. His truth will stand on its own merits. And you've got to trust that people can hear and make their own conclusions. And in fact, if I would go back, I was just telling, uh, I don't know if you remember Robert Hyde. He was a, one sure. of the most prolific guests we have, and he and I are still very, very close. I consider him the closest thing to a spiritual guru that I have. <laughs> uh, and, I'm, and I'm surrounded by a cloud of wonderful senior influences on me. But uh, I was telling him today, I said, you know, if I had the future quake to do over again, I wouldn't worry so much about what some of that crowd was. The, 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 the older crowd that were constantly taking me to the woodshed, because I tried to be gracious to them and spend a lot of my time dealing with them rather than doing more research. Right. And, 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 and it should be our nature that we should be kind to seniors and to people and to try to keep reconciliation going. But there's a point when people have to say, look, this is a forum for ideas exchange. Um, you know, this is not a crusade. We're not having to go out and defend the faith against some foreign invader. Uh, this is a time for us to have a chat. Yeah, And so, and that's why, you know, I just encourage you all, you know, do some due diligence. Don't just have any kind of pablum on the air. But if it's something that maybe even just some tiny part of it with a guest has something that's worthy of consideration, you may not even totally buy it. You know, that, that's worth having on there. And, right. and let the listener sort it out. And you all probably got a better handle on that than I did. But I was, <laughs> I was treading new territory. I had a lot of cultural baggage from my upbringing in my church that would impede me a lot of times from really feeling fully liberated in that regard. And so, you know, that's why Future Quake Seven Years was just an education process for me. And a lot of people just got to set in and listen in along with me as I was trying to reprogram myself. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Well, you know what? I think, and I think a lot of people agree with this, as is evident by our iTunes comments. But at least for our show, like when I hear you talking about sort of the virtues of future quake it just reminds me it reminds me of how me and gons here started this show you know with the same sort of virtues and i think that future quake definitely laid a a nice foundation for us to kind of just sort of sprout up as as you guys were were um 
you know, winding down. And, you know, I, I hope that that's evident when people listen. And, you know, the one thing that is interesting when I was hearing you talk about when you were on the actual radio and getting all the hate mail, and I, th- I think it's a little different for us because people actually have to on purpose listen to what we're saying. <laughs> well, and let me, let me clarify that. Drive home. Most of the hate mail came from the people that were internet listeners. Oh, really? I didn't, get, I didn't get that much. I would have thought that, you know, pl- please, older women in listenership, don't take this wrong. But there's a common term, the blue-haired ladies right. in church, which are usually, and again, I'm sure none of your listeners qualify for this, but more of the busybodies are always looking to analyzing everybody. You know, church lady on right. Saturday Night Live was sort of a character <laughs> right. representing that. But you got those kind of people, and, and they have many virtues. But sometimes I just overdo it a little bit at having to be the defender of this or that. And um, I would have thought the people who weren't used to where we were coming from in the Wild West, the Internet, would have the most issue. No, I had nothing but, like, new people coming to our church and listening on the radio. But on the Internet, these people, that's a forum for people to just pick each other apart. Right. And and that's what's really sad. And, you know. Do it anonymously, too. I can't tell you how many like different forums like Bible prophecy that I have been thrown off of <laughs> just really? for announcing a guest who might have a very slight, very slight difference on an exact time on when the Lord's appearance occurs. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not talking about a big one. I'm talking about this tiny thing, yeah. you know, on, on an ambiguity of scripture. And for that, it's cause for getting thrown off you know, major boards because of the poison of that teaching right. and stuff like that. And the vindictive comments on, on message boards and things, that's why I have to tell you, I don't do Facebook. Uh, people often want me to do that, but and some people manage it well. One thing, I'm too old. I can't even find out where to read stuff on Facebook. I like reading <laughs> blogs and regular websites. But, but, you know, it just gets so silly vindictive. And I, the same way with a lot of message boards, it's just, it just gets so juvenile. Right. That the lowest common element takes over. And one of the nice things with your show is that you all can control the nature of the discourse. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I just say set high. That doesn't mean you don't have to act goofy and childish. I mean, having that, uh, we, had a, we had a corner on the market at Futurequake on childishness. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but the fact is, you know, tr- try to be semi-constructive. Right. And, you know, and we criticize stuff. There was a lot of criticism going on on our show. But, I, and I, if people don't understand that before, I'll tell them now. I know I get a lot of hang-ups and issues. There's always a lot of fingers pointing back at me, you know, when I point out other kind of stuff. So it was never intended that I had myself together so much. It was a lot of just thinking out loud. Right. Sure. And, yeah. uh, and I think there's got to be a place for that. If we can keep our humility, if we, uh, if we don't just become, uh, you know, we, we turn into a crusader, and because Crusaders it usually never ter- works out good. Right. Sure, look, yeah. Look at the Crusades. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I would have to echo Jeez, Basil yeah. and, uh, you know, just uh, say thank you, just, you know, uh, out loud to, because, you know, it was shows, your show was PID Radio. Uh, I mean, our show wouldn't even exist without those shows. So it's just, you guys laid the groundwork and, and it's quite often, I, I must admit that, you know, before we have on a guest, uh, some of the bigger names we've had, the Peter Good Games, uh, 
we had on Standeo and and a few others, Mike Heiser. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would go back and listen to those Future Quake episodes and just you know just hash out, okay, how did Doctor Future handle some of this? Mm. And uh, and especially you know we we haven't had too many guests that are you know super controversial yeah uh, at, yet not yet uh, we i yeah, think basil and i have talked yeah we've talked and and well maybe um, tonight we'll uh, change that <laughs> <laughs> well maybe but you know it's one of those things we did have uh, a lady who wrote a fiction book a while ago i can't remember what episode number it was but her fiction book had a nephilim child mm-hmm. uh, be the hero and so obviously, you know, we, we didn't really agree with that, but we, yeah. it, one of the things that I did was really listen to some of the, the way you handled disagreements. And, uh, you know, I think we tried to model that, uh, I don't know if it was successful or not, but we, we tried to be cordial and, you know, just express our concern, uh, to the author, uh, because it was a children's book. Yeah. So, you know, future quake is always, you know, hopefully that website will stay up and, and the feed will stay up and. I find myself digging through the material, the 300 episodes that are there uh, quite often. So I appreciate, you know, all the stuff that you've done. And I think you actually did read, uh, I sent an email one time and you read my email on air and it was, that was like, Oh man, Dr. Future read my email. This is so cool. (laughs) You know? And that was like a huge moment for me. So, so I just, you know, thank you for that. Well, you know, man, this this was like a real shot in the arm to be just to hear you all tonight, and I'm I'm so glad you called because I I feel like now this is going to really date me, but there used to be a character in the commercials called the Maytag repairman. I don't know if you heard of him, but it it was a ingenious idea. Maytag uh, appliances were supposed to be so reliable that their repairman had nothing to do. And so they, they, it was a long running for like decades. The Maytag repairman was a guy who just sat at his desk with his hands in his head, you know, on his head and just know what to do. And that's sort of almost what I felt like during this time that I've been working on my book is I've, I've tried to keep myself useful in doing that. But uh, I figured I disappeared in the sands of time. But it, it makes me really self-conscious to hear that you've listened to these shows so carefully and closely and, and, and monitored what I did because, you know, I, I was clueless on what was going on. And, and that's why I want to encourage your listeners, if they would consider doing a show like you all have or things, is that having any skill in anything is definitely not a requirement or, yeah. or having any experience or any background or even any good sense to you. Because I proved that was, that was uh, clear. And people could hear the mistakes I made in the, in the, the big terrible things I did or put my foot in my mouth and because I had no training in it. You know, I sure. just thought there should be a place where we could talk about far out nifty kind of stuff and maybe do it respectfully and, and challenge people without trying to humiliate them. Right. And, uh, you know, but, you know, I was feeling blind. I didn't have another precedent to go look at to see how somebody else did it. So I just did it. And then I don't tell you how many times we finished a show and I was racked with self-doubt. Like, yeah, man, I really screwed that one up, or I'm going to hear about it from this, or these people, you know, I, I, I didn't say this right, or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so that gives me a little peace of mind to hear somebody like yourself, you, you're giving me credit I don't deserve, but to say that there was something of merit to go hear about style. Yeah. And, and, I, and I have heard that from some people, and, and I guess may, maybe... When I die one day and I'm questioning, was there anything I did useful? If I was able to help contribute to set a tone, a tone that you can not be so uptight as a Christian, 
You can be fun, lighthearted, laugh at yourself, joke with other people, talk to people who are different than you, not make it a confrontation. Uh, let the information sort itself out for the listener. And just appreciate people who are willing to think out loud. Uh, and if it helps create a tone for that, then I'm tickled to death. It'll probably be a much better legacy than anything I write or anything else I do here on out. Mm-hmm. Amen. You're my kind of guy, Doc Fuch. Well, you know, the <laughs> thing is, y'all are talking about this, but right now, you guys are it. I mean, this is where it's happening. I don't oh, know how stop. many people I know who, who, you know, try to stay on the cutting edge and know what's going on, and they, they keep listening. They, they're, they're not set out to pasture like me. They're actually trying to... <laughs> Stay on the forefront. <laughs> and, and, you know, every one of them that I know listen to the show. Uh, uh, yeah. and, that, and, that's, and that's where they go to listen. I will hear people say, well, did you hear so-and-so guest on Canary Cry, blah, blah, blah. And, and these are, you know, my close friends saying this. So you, wow. you guys are carrying the mantle. So you can talk about what you used in the past, but the fact is you all are doing the heavy lifting. And um, it is a sacred honor. It's, it's sort of like that night in the... Uh, what was it, the Holy Grail thing with... Uh, yeah, yeah, and Indiana Jones. Yeah, yeah, that's sort of what this is like, and you're having to guard it there, you know? Uh, so a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. It made too Suddenly heavy Suddenly I you. feel like I don't know what we're doing. You right have here. chosen poorly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, all it is is the universe in its fate lies in the balance with you. That's all I'm trying to make. No biggie. Okay. Man, and don't, don't and don't screw it up because it could actually change who wins and loses in Revelation based on what <laughs> you all do. Man, retirement is sounding pretty nice right now. Or that time machine. Yeah, so, the time machine. Speaking of legacies and speaking about changing the course of history forever, the cosmic story being played out as we speak, let's talk about um, what you're working on your book. Okay. Can we do that? Yeah. Well, since you have millions of listeners, yes. this would be a good time. Billions even. To billions, <laughs> yeah. To, well, we, we don't even know out in the cosmos who's listening, but yeah. uh, to, correct, to correct the record for everybody who emails me, and I appreciate everybody checking to see if I'm still alive and if I'm still doing anything, uh, it is not book. Mm. It is books or book mm. series, okay? I, my, my life is a testimony that I never do anything simply or logically. <laughs> I always have to make it far more elaborate than it needs to be. You know, when I produce Future Quake, I, I would spend forever editing little things that probably you couldn't even hear on the show, whereas the stuff that was really bad, I overlooked. Yes. But I spent a lot of time doing stuff that didn't make... If, if I had just done a simple show that maybe uploaded to Blog Talk Radio or something... It would have been so much easier, but that's not the way I do things. I always do things yeah. too complicated. and Kind of sounds like Gons a little bit. Well, good. Yeah. We have something in common. <laughs> well, what's happened is I have taken full liberty of what the writing process has given me to basically just say what's there, what I think needs to be say, said, and not being forced into this brevity of trying to fit in a 20-minute slot or something. Mm-hmm. And putting the data out there and submitting the record, I'm I'm not taking the approach that um, if I wanted to write a bestseller, that was just some chewing gum for people to read and be inspirational and be a coffee table book. That is not what I'm doing. And so as I got into it, 
let me just reiterate for people who don't even remember. It's been so long or haven't heard about this. Uh, I have taken off on something that listeners to Future Quake toward the end could see that I was becoming a little obsessed with. And that was the ramifications of the big event of my generation, the war on terror, and how it was affecting Christian culture. Mm-hmm. And what, what did it reveal about our Christian culture in the West? What, what did it expose about us and our hearts and our attitudes, our history, and make manifest in it? And the, and the high stakes that I believe are there spiritually. And so that became the main focus, not so much on some of the you know extreme supernatural stuff, but when you look back at the guest list for the last six to 12 months of Future Quake, you, you see that tangent or that vector. And, and so basically what the, what the series has evolved into from a single book to now uh, it's appearing and hopefully it's going to be finalized as a five-book series. And there's even a spinoff book that's already been drafted that's come off of it. So I'm going to put my cards on the table for listeners. Anybody cares? It's subject to maybe some slight further modification, but I think we're, we're pretty much there. It's called, uh, the working title I'm using is The Holy War Chronicles, A Spiritual View of the War on Terror. Mm, wow. And the, the volumes as they're currently structured, uh, of the five volumes I have, three and a half volumes drafted. I've got another volume and a half that I have the data collated. I've just got to write the narrative. And um, from and, and literally, I've got thousands and thousands of articles. I've got stacks of books to cite and everything like this. But the, the first two volumes are basically history. And the first volume is the, uh, the history of of our interaction in the West with the Middle East and how that affects how we're perceived in the Middle East. And the whole goal of this is to uncover information that the average, particularly Christian person, but the average person is not aware of that helps explain attitudes, the animosities that exist between particularly Muslim cultures in the Middle East and us. What has happened that we've not been told? And certainly not being talked about on Christian radio. Interesting. Uh, and that's in and each of these volumes are running on the order of about four hundred pages. Oh my so goodness. I've, I've so far I've drafted about uh, eighteen hundred pages. Are you afraid that, that environmentalists are gonna come out and, and um they kiss the the, the rainforest goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're they're good as gone. Uh, you know, that's a really I, I just love that topic. It kind of sounds like somebody's doctorate like thesis or something like it's a it seems like a really intricate uh sociological phenomenon to kind of delve into well you know the whole the whole thing is when you get this stuff we we have in the internet age we have data flying at us and available from everywhere yeah well it's not a it's not an availability of data issue it is the ability to integrate it into a theme to see relationships and to sort out what is what is significant versus what is not? What is noise? Signal right. to noise. Sure. And, 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 and how does it all form a picture of knowledge? Because every piece of data, uh, you don't know where it comes from, who was behind it, uh, you know, the, what piece of the angle does it tell. And so you've got to collate a lot of data from a lot of places. And the one reliable source we have is God's Word. But you take all this stuff together, and if a mosaic starts to appear. Mm. And so 
Uh, each one of these volumes has a separate piece of the puzzle in a broad sense. Um, and I have been lectured at, I don't know how many times, are people who are looking and they want this to be a success. And they're telling me I'm making it too complex, I'm making it too big, people will never read it. Uh, it's just too much to digest. And, and my response is, I have already seen from the debate that's gone on on Future Quake and since then on the internet and elsewhere that these are complicated issues. And, and, and actually the purpose of my writing is not to entertain, not to be a bestseller, but to actually provide enough information and education to actually persuade people to change their minds. Mm. And, and, and the, the opinions that, that surround the war on terror and about these other non-Christian cultures are so strong in our Christian culture that if they have a hundred points that lead them to have their convictions and you have debunked 99 of them and left one, well, that's, a, that's enough for them to retain their current position. Yeah. The mm. onus, and this is just my observation, maybe I'm wrong, but I have found just interacting with other people and I have no problem finding people who disagree with me and fellow Christians. And so I get lots of practice and understanding how can I get them to maybe see another way. Um, what I have found is unless I can cover every angle and virtually checkmate their, their, mm. their reservations, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not successful in changing hearts and minds unless I do it. So it has led me to do a little bit more exhaustive effort like this. Mm-hmm. The people who may care to read it, I don't know how many will. I really don't know. I'm leaving that in the Lord's hands. But what I hope is, unless I'm really wrong, is that they're going to find in this book almost a revelation, a page, and something that will totally turn what they believed on its ear. And if I can keep them hanging on from one page to the next, before long, one volume will be done, and they'll be writing for the next volume, and then the next one. And maybe from then, I can lead them to at least consider another view. Right. So... But um, just, to, just to go back to the, the scope of it, the second volume which I've drafted is the history of how our governments and media sources in the West have portrayed the people of the Middle East to us mm-hmm. and other mm-hmm. people we disagree with. And in both of those volumes, they're history. And they go back from about 100 years ago up to today. And there are sections in there that when I started, and, and none of these things, since I've, I've got such a broad canvas, I can't go in tremendous depth like a, you know, like some researchers that find one tiny topic and just, you got a flashlight going back through file cabinets forever. It's not that kind of book, but there's enough research in it, even in this broad brush, that it totally shocked me about stuff I didn't know mm-hmm. about things that we had undergoing in the Middle East. What, what we had done and why people feel the way we do, um, the people who had controlled the information that we have known, not just about people in the Middle East, but about anybody who's different than us. And, and some of the information has just, it's, it's haunted me. It blew my mind so much that it debunked what I understood about America and about Christian culture. Uh, the third volume, which I'm working on right now, is the history of our faith communities in uh, confronting people of other faith cultures. And um, that's when things really, well, it's controversy from the beginning of volume one to the end of volume five, but the, it steps up considerably when you start touching on the third rail 
of people's faith belief and some of the heroes they look at. And it starts uncovering some of the dirty baggage of the Christian West in this regard. Uh, the fourth volume gets even worse because it starts naming specific names of people in the current struggle in the war on terror in our Christian community and in their associated political and activist partners. Mm. And, and it, it talks about the backgrounds of these people that most people don't know about. Who are the people funding them? Who are the people bankrolling them? And even secret societies and organizations that they belong to that put a whole different spin on how we would look at these people that otherwise are the celebrities of Christian media and, uh, you know, in our, our other Christian periodicals and things. When you know the whole story about these people, you will look at them totally differently. Interesting. And then, and then the, um, the last volume is to look at what might be a more proper way to deal with people of other faith cultures. And I go through the kind of people that don't get talked about on, on normal Christian radio, but there is a legacy through time of people who've done it Christ's way. And we can start with Christ himself and how he did it and how God even directed the children of Israel to do it. Um, and, and it comes up through a legacy of the church that is kept quiet because it doesn't go with the status quo. And, and then it, it challenges. It leaves us with a challenge on do we want to, to adopt Christ's way of dealing with this challenge of this clash of civilizations? Or do we want to go the way our Christian leaders are taking us? Mm. And I like that. I like, I like that, that you, you're kind of making a call to action that's practical, you know, for, for the Christian. And that's important because a lot of times I think, you know, people will present research and, and do all kinds of great things, but they don't really provide any kind of solution or, or the challenge, if you will, the, the call to action to try to change or to challenge your own views. Well, if you'll notice back in Future Quakes, it's you, you all have listened to them. All the questions that I prepared were all you know, prepared in advance after some forethought and study. I right. sent them to the guests ahead of time so they could put some time thinking about it. Uh, they, weren't, they weren't blindsided, in other words. It's very but polite I, of you. Well, you know, it's, I don't want them to think it's a gotcha kind of thing. But yeah. the, 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 I never tried to finish a show no matter how weird or esoteric the topic was, without finishing it by saying, okay, what do we do with this information? What constructive thing can we do, either in our thinking, but even more so what we do? And I try to do that with every single show with Future Quake. When, when I speak at conferences, I do not finish a talk, and I usually go much, much longer than what I'm supposed to. But I don't finish it without trying to package it up and make some suggestions for people on what they should change their modus of operandi based upon this new information available to them. And so, to me, the job's unfinished unless you do that. And, and ultimately, the best way is for the recipient of the information to make their own decisions. But I find that's often difficult for people these days. They're, 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 the average person is not as gifted as, as we would like to sometimes always connect the dots. And they need a little bit of help, and particularly what to do with it, or maybe just some suggestions to consider. So, yeah, that's, that's always going to be a part of, of uh, you know, what I do with the writing or things. There, there's one other book that's already been drafted, uh, and part of it uh, goes from something that was happening in the later volumes of the book. When, when I make, I think, a very, very convincing case, and this may shock a lot of your listeners, hopefully not, um, 
that to look just objectively, uh, statistically, and elsewhere, how low the odds are that you and I are going to wake up tomorrow and live in a country that is under Sharia law. Like, yeah. That suddenly the three of us are going to be subject to Sharia law. And, and I use not just one or two, but a whole lot of different independent may, ways of uh, looking at population, statistics, other kind of things to recognize the absurdity of it. But then the question arose, okay, if, if this is not a legitimate threat, if this has been exaggerated, and, and I go in and I, I point fingers at why this came about. Who were the people doing it? What were their motives? Uh, how did they co-opt the Christian church for it? But then the question comes is, who really is running things? If it's not this rising global caliphate that's running the whole show in the world, who is running the show, really? And, and who is it that has the big motive to put Christians, Jews, and Muslims fighting each other? Mm. And then I started trying to document some of that. And it became a chapter. And then it grew to 100 pages, so it had to become an appendix. And then eventually, as it grew to 500 pages, I recognized it had to be its own book. <laughs> and so it has a working title of The Hidden Hand Against the God-Fearers. Mm-hmm. And it, it really it's a, it's a companion piece to the Holy War Chronicles in that it, um, it, it goes in painstaking detail to show a group of people who do not wear weird clothes and turbans and, and robes, but people who dress like you and me, many of which said it even in our churches, but who have expressed in writing a, an express purpose to pit Christian Jews and Muslims against each other for their own destruction because they have other plans for planet Earth. Interesting. And so I, I and it takes in some strange directions. Uh, I started through this study to find out who were the, some of the people that C.S. Lewis was writing about. It finally uncovered a mystery of probably one of his most serious works, um, That Hideous Strength, which was yeah. the last of his science fiction theories. It goes into great detail to show how the characters in that book were actually the part of this battle that I'm talking about, that he and G.K. Chesterton were having against some key figures that were in this battle, like... Uh, um, George Bernard Shaw and and H.G. Uh, Wells. There there was a battle for civilization going on, and thank goodness in that era, in the middle of the 20th century, we had Christians that had an intellectual rigor where they could participate in it. I'm afraid these days we have almost none that have that kind of rigor of those guys because we've dumbed down our Christianity so much mm. that we can't go toe to toe. So. Anyway, that gives now, you a little capsule. That sort of put the cat out of the bag. That but. is a cat, and there is no bag. The bag's <laughs> gone. That is a, a, a. It just seems astronomically large project. Oh There's yeah, I, so much packed in it. Now, uh, okay, I, I don't mean to to go back and and address something, but you were talking about the war going on. That's that. C.S. Lewis and and yeah. uh, can you give a couple more details on that? Like what it, what exactly was that going on? Well, this this is gonna you know again let, sort of let out the premise of the book, but I guess I can right. get some feedback on it. Just a little um, bit more. Te- just tease me a little bit more. I, I I begin in that book to show who are the people 
who really have set up the wars of the 20th century? Uh-huh. Who are the people that adjusted the ebb and flow of economics, different parts of the world, and when they have done it through religious organizations or movements, when they wanted to use it for their purpose, when they wanted to destroy them for their set purpose? Right. Um, and, and, and went through those groups, but a, 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 a significant segment of it goes into an area that I haven't really found much interest to be interested in, and I backed into it in, in researching this part of the book, and that is the impact of the political part of Darwinism. Hmm. Um, I've never, and again, I'm not questioning the Bible record, it's just never been something that I've just had much interest to focus on as far as the, the debate going on, you know, and the origins and uh, all that kind of stuff, you know. To, to, to me, a lot of what comes out of uh, evolution teaching is just bad scientific method. Right. Because any time you try to extrapolate backwards a te- a, an experiment that you cannot replicate and right. witness, you, you, you can't really go out of the realm of hypothesis without the ability to replicate it. So, you know, there's fundamental science issues right there, but, but that's not what I get into. What I get into is really what the whole rise of Darwinism was about, which it was a political movement. Hmm. If, if you read the whole title of The Origin of the Species, the rest of the title is the real giveaway, and it talks about the preferred order of races. Right. And it, it, was, it was meant to try to give a scientific backing to the rise in the West of the Anglo-Saxon superiority over the rest of humanity. It mm. basically justified the colonial state, uh, the white man's burden, all this kind of stuff, and it gives science to, to, to back it up. And, and what happened was that wow. Anglo-Saxon superiority mindset began to galvanize behind, and in fact, the leaders were guys who worked directly for, for Charles Darwin. Uh, oh. they included, the guys who worked directly for him included H.G. Wells, included Aldous Huxley, included Julian Huxley, who was actually the first head of UNESCO. The, these guys not only were given the premier positions of global influence, they spent a lot of time in the sanitarium. Wow. So when they weren't leading the world, they, they were loony out of their bin. For a couple of reasons. One is because of the darkness in which they pursued. And, and also, they had their own biological problems. Many people don't know that the elite of that era, through the royal families, but either just other upper crust people, believed in inbreeding amongst right. their own. And they had all sorts of problems. That's why a lot of them ended up in sanitariums, was because th- they, they thought they were being so elitist by keeping their bloodline amongst themselves that they were dooming themselves. Uh, but there's all sorts of reasons for their problem. But you see the rise of groups, uh, and, I, and I don't mean this to go after the left, because I, I do have a newfound appreciation for parts of the left, but the, the Fabian Socialists actually came about um, as, as a movement to form a technocracy that would be independent of a religious-influenced uh, ethic. Hmm. Uh, and... When you begin to understand what George Bernard Shaw, who is considered the greatest playwright in the English-speaking world after Shakespeare, uh, and H.G. Wells and their cohorts, what they believed politically, it puts a whole new light on what they wrote, even in their fiction. Right. Uh, 
things like Pygmalion and My, Fire, My Fair Lady, which came from, from George Bernard Shaw, was all about basically selective breeding and selective nurturing for creating a new master race. Wow. And the guys who were the, you know, the elite dons who were taking Eliza and doing it, they, they were actually prototypes of what they were already writing about, about them breeding a new master race apart from God, apart from religious influences that a technocracy elite would operate. And it became further and further more advanced. Uh, and their writing became more strident where they actually write about actually destroying the Vatican, destroying the Kaaba, uh, destroying you know, the Temple in Jerusalem, doing these kind of things because they knew that anybody who believed that were monotheists and believed in a personal God to fear, they knew they stood in the way of their adoption of the state as being God for man and being able to define what was virtuous and right by technocrats versus an external God. Wow. And I give copious information through the course of the pages of how that evolved. Uh, just a few little tidbits. You know, I write a, a, a good bit about strange things like Bohemian Grove. Right. Y'all probably yeah. talked about Bohemian Grove. and things Sure, like this. yeah. Uh, one thing that a lot of people don't know, did you know that when the first United Nations Assembly came to San Francisco in, what, 1945 to kick off the United Nations? Did you know that the Army and Navy took all of those people and hauled them off by truck to Bohemian Grove? No. And the Army and Navy operated Bohemian Grove. They performed the cremation of care ceremony, did all their weird mystical stuff for all of the attendees of the first UN summit. Wow. That's incredibly, and I just had no idea. That's crazy. And um, again, I've, I've not been able to take any one of these things and just go into ridiculous depth because right. of the breadth of even this topic that I'm writing. But just things like that that I've uncovered. Yeah. Um, and, and I spent a good bit. And, and, and by the way, everything that I'm writing, I'm trying to make a good effort to use only top-notch resources. Uh-huh. Sure. A lot of yeah. the resources are hot linked to the book so people can click on the very source and verify everything that I say. Cool. All of the quotes that I have, you can go through and verify. Now, if they're really, really old books, I'll cite the book. You got to find a book. Sometimes those books have actually been scanned online. Um, uh, other ones you might have to get if you insist on it. But right. a, a lot of the articles, other research is done. It's available online. You can go back and verify. But I have, because of the skeptics that I expect to read my books, I've tried to only use sources like uh, congressional testimony out of Congress, wow. other legal testimony where people were under oath, uh, the major newspapers of record like New York Times, L.A. Times, that kind of thing, uh, or, or their, the overseas Western equivalents. You know, so like, no like, Wikipedia. Uh, no. <laughs> Is what although you're although I, I, I will readily admit that when I come across something new I've never heard of, Right. I'll stop over to Wikipedia just to get a cursory understanding of what the heck it is that I found, Amen. and then and then start to you know to begin with some other links. Particularly, you yeah. know, they, they usually have credible links uh, on on main sources. 
Right. Uh, but but no, I'm not linking to Wikipedia entries in uh, <laughs> in these writing. But you know, Wikipedia gets a bum rap in that regard. And I think most of yeah. the most of the people who, when they refer to this stuff, it's usually when people get into trashy topics where people are going back and forth, and it's not objective historical facts that are being documented about a historical figure. Right. That, when I use it, that's usually what I'm looking at is when there's just a historical fact of an event have occurred or an organization that existed. When they're getting to what the latest starlet did or, or you know, what they did in Hollywood or something like that, you get some of that he said, she said stuff. And I think that's what people think of with, with Wikipedia is in that regard. Right. And I, that's just not the stuff I'm looking for. Yeah. But, but no, I, I, I've gone, I've, I've spent a fortune in books so I can actually cite the books and the records old, old books from hundreds of years ago that, you know, can, uh, and, and sometimes there are certain things that everyone passes around on the internet, including Christian radio online, that we all assume is true. And it is so juicy because it really reinforces the point that I'm making. Right. And I want to embrace it and pass it on because people have accepted it. Right. And right. I've tried to resist that. And there's one in particular uh, that was about a prophecy, like a, a Mazzini paper that, that a, a famous sort of a, a leader in Italy and an occultic leader too, had, had a letter with Albert Pike, the, the famous Masonic leader, right. talking about three world wars that were going to happen that were involved certain groups, and one of them involved the right, Jews. Yeah. Jews and, and this has basically just become the gospel about this. And, and yeah. it, would, it would serve my premise in my book. However... I went on a long trail to try to find out the origin of it, and you had to go back to the 1700s to find it. And I came to the conclusion that there were certain stages when some people fancifully added some things mm. to some old letters that, that had sort of a general sense of that, but putting the particular characters in it was added by somebody else. And, and I think there was a book called Checkmate or something like that back in the 50s, where finally that story crystallized. But it mm. appears to be some folktales at it. And so I run, in times, I run into things like that. And this, it's a good exercise for me to try to hold me accountable, to stick yeah. to just the facts. And I will tell you, just sticking to the facts, um, you know, a lot of people probably don't realize that back in the early 70s, our own government was exposed in court as financing a right-wing terrorist group that was shooting professors and other people, and actually had plans to blow up the attendees and the delegates at the 72 Republican Convention. Oh, my wow. gosh. And we're going to assassinate them, uh, dressing up as Vietnam veterans against the war, mixing in with John Kerry and these other guys, and it was exposed in court uh, that, that the FBI was running it and, so, and a group out of the White House. Yeah, I think, I think I've heard about this. I've never heard about my, this. Every uh, truck needs to hear about this. Yeah. And in fact, they didn't stop there. They had to end up moving the convention with weeks to go to the other side of the country, to Miami, and they made a second attempt at it, uh, also planning to do the same thing. And the, the context of all this, I, I show basically when we see terrorism and we immediately put certain dots together and we circle our wagons and our nationalistic, patriotic protective shell and we've been conditioned to to connect dots a certain way based on certain frames and right. i have to painstakingly go through and, and show 
that the biggest perpetrators of terror in the United States has been, and this has been proven in court and in memoirs and things, has been our own government. Yeah. Uh, ter- terror has been perpetuated. And, and part of the thing that got me on this approach, and part of what even got me to decide to even do this book series, is when I started finding out things like, for example, that the Muslim Brotherhood was basically established by Western intelligence, by British intelligence. Uh-huh. That that the gentleman who, in fact, even the predecessor to the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, the pan-Islamic movement, was 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 basically undertaken and financed by by MI6. Wow! Uh, because it provided a counter- counterbalance to the secular inter- independence movements in the Middle Eastern colonies, wow. and. They had used this to balance, and the Americans got in on it with the Wahhabis and the Saudi Arabians, and I was most shocked to find evidence that the top officials in Israel admitted that they had founded Hamas for the same purpose. Wow. That Hamas was founded by the Israeli government. That's incredible. Now, when I started realizing that the guys who are considered the main culprits of terror— in our discourse, particularly in our Christian circles, are actually products of our own government. Right. Well, that raises a whole lot of questions. <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> and so you got to go back and start reading back a hundred years. And I have come across actual government documents that show the r- real reasons for the invasions of, of Afghanistan and Iraq that go all the way back to 1991. Wow, and, and there are surprising reasons. It has nothing to do with Islam or terrorism or anything. It was mostly an economic reason to generate a threat and then make a a footprint in these areas to stop our allies from becoming a competing defense juggernaut and thus an economic juggernaut in those areas. And I give the evidence in That's there that such a bizarre it, reason it, it was I know, and I couldn't believe until I read it with my own eyes out of the government documents that that it was our concern that Germany and Japan would develop their own nuclear weapons program and therefore gain an economic uh, sphere of influence in these areas that required for us to fabricate a pretense for invading these countries, and it was written by the guys who later became known as the neocons as far back as 1992. Jeez. That is, I've just never heard anything remotely close. That is brand new to me. This is all brand new to me. Well, as, as you get more, my mind. more and more of it that comes together, a mosaic starts to form, and we, right. I start to realize how gullible we have been. Yeah. And I, and I, and I hate to think for as Christians who we believe we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit and the supernatural wisdom and discernment that are available to us, how little we've made use of it. And, and in fact, when, when Jesus says that, you know, the children of the world are more shrewd than the children of light, mm-hmm. and he encourages his children to wise up. Right. Um, you know, it was a real call to me because... I've spent almost all of my adult life in the darkness on a lot of this stuff and hadn't even bothered to take some time to start 
looking into this stuff and questioning what I had been spoon fed. Right. Sure. Yeah. Now, I think a lot of people that look at, you know, the grander conspiracies and, and, and just in general names like Rockefellers, Rothschilds, mm-hmm. they, they come up over and yeah. over again. Uh, are these some of the names that you ran across in your research? Um, in the hidden hand against the God fears, uh, their names come up uh, a good bit. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we used to joke, if you remember, on Future Quake. It wasn't a Future Quake unless Nephilim or the Rockefellers. Right, had, right, exactly. In some <laughs> obscure way, it had to come up. Uh, but, um, no, they, they have their place. And, in fact, they insisted on having their place. It's not just, you know, conspiracy theorists and Alex Jones guys and things like that. It, you know, and, and, and actually, to be honest, I have a lot of issues with guys currently today the kind of focus that somebody like alex jones is doing i I can find some political disagreements i have with him on certain things he has but i still appreciate that he got me asking questions about stuff and as i told him when he was on our show on future quake there were some questions he asked and some data he unveiled that were stuff i should have learned from a pastor i should have learned from a christian leader Mm. And he asked these questions, and I'm not endorsing, obviously, everything he does now, but I'm just saying I still have an appreciation for the questions he, he helped me, to, not just him, Stan Monteith is somebody I hold deeply. And, and one of the people who really helped me a lot with the data that formed a crux of the Hidden Hand Against God Fears was a gentleman by the name of Dennis Cuddy, who's, who's a regular weekly guest on Dr. Stan Monteith's show, Radio Liberty, an older gentleman does fantastic research. Uh, I've also become acquainted with the resources he used in those gentlemen and have tried to pick and choose the data that was pertinent to the subject that I had. Uh, but they were the ones that went through the old, old, old newspapers, the old stuff that you can't get online, went to the library, and dug out the smoking gun trail. Right. And so I appreciate those guys for that. Um, and so, yeah, the yeah, others a footprint. You know, um, somebody else who I recommend, I'll just throw this out here for people. An- another gentleman who was very useful in that study was a gentleman by the name of Edwin Black, who um, has written some incredible books. Um, his, his parents died in the Holocaust. They uh, smuggled him through a window in the rail car on the way to the concentration camp. Wow. Literally pushed him through a window off the train as they were going. Uh, is I, that's how I understand it. But um, uh, one of his main research books, and he's won all sorts of literary awards, showed basically that the guys who built Hitler's war machine that made it happen, and, and many of your guests may already know this, and they were recognized. These three men were flown to Berlin and were given by Hitler the highest award that a civilian could be given under Nazi Germany. Well, they, they were awarded the highest honor for making the Blitzkrieg and the war in Europe possible. And those three men were Henry Ford, Sloan, Sloan of General Motors, and Watson of IBM. Wow. They said they would have never been able to conduct the war of World War II without those three gentlemen because the, the, the vehicles that conducted the Blitzkrieg across Europe were built by General Motors and Ford. And General Motors and Ford made a fortune off of the, the vehicles that were used right. to kill our, our, our sons 
on the foreign wars. Uh, but the worst one by far, as bad as that is, uh, is, um, um, in fact, you know, Henry Ford, he passed out the protocols of the elders of Zion in the Ford dealerships. If you went to go test drive a Ford, you got a copy of the protocol of the elders of Zion. He bought them out. Uh, but, That's crazy. But, but Watson, Watson of IBM, he, he was the head of IBM. He took on the project with the Nazis, with the Holocaust, as his own project, where he was the sales agent that got all of the, the royalties and the commissions, went directly to his pocket. But you've seen the numbers that are printed on Holocaust survivors, the serial code numbers tattooed yeah. on their arms. Did you recognize that's, that is a proprietary IBM number system? It's, it's called a Hollerith code. That is a number that is used for the punch cards that IBM invented. Whoa. <laughs> I, IBM, IBM came, came in, and they came up with a system with their computers to do what the German, ger, the German capability could not do, which was they were able to build computers to get databases of everyone in Germany who had any any record, any remote record that showed they had at least one sixteenth Jewish blood, and therefore had the gold star or could be put in a ghetto. That IBM set up the computers to figure out where to find those people and actually locate where they were. In Germany gave up; they couldn't corral the Jews until IBM came to their rescue and put this together. IBM came up with the system to figure out how to build the ghettos to pack the most people in every single room to basically make it an insufferable living conditions were, 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 were basically devised by IBM. IBM devised the system of the rail cars to the concentration camps to figure out so, so no Jew fell through the cracks and made it free of the concentration camps. And then at each concentration camp, there was an IBM office staffed by IBM employees with a punch card for every inmate of every camp uh, with codes on there when they should go to the gas chambers, when they should have these medical experiments done on them. Every one of those was run with the efficiency of the IBM office. <laughs> while they were doing this, while they were helping make the Holocaust a reality, they were getting paid commissions that were going into Thomas Watson's personal pocket. And in fact, when they freed the last concentration camp, the German officers came out and they had a check and they gave it to the American gov uh, the military officials and said, please give, this is our last check to Mr. Watson. Please provide it for his services rendered. Wow. I mean, it almost makes me sick to my stomach to, to think about uh, you know, I think I owned a IBM computer early on yeah. you know, uh, just when the computer was were coming out and I was growing up and I, I don't know. It's just why, kind of mind-blowing. My why, brain why, is melting. Why, why weren't these people held at the Nuremberg trials? Yeah. How come these people, I mean, they did crimes against humanity. You know, it's all who you know. Wow. And, and when you know certain people, suddenly these people don't, you know, they'll take some lowly guard who got drug into watching while people were marching out of camp, and they threw the book at that guy. And I'm not exonerating him. I'm just saying they take a guy like that and they'll make an example of him. But the kingpins who were running the show got off scot-free. Right. 
Okay, so with all this history, how does it tie into the here and now? Because uh, some people may argue, well, this was you know, 50, 60 years ago, mm. uh, different motives, uh, different technologies. Um, you know, h- how does it tie into the kinds of things we're seeing now? Well, on, on, on that topic, you know, that, that information was taken out of the Hidden Hand Against the Godfearers, which I've drafted. Um, where, where the narrative leads, it historically comes up to the modern era. And each set of information I present leads the groundwork on how they accomplished a certain part of their plan and led the establishment of the United Nations, um, the cultural initiatives they did, which became religious initiatives. Uh, you probably heard me talk about that unique experience I had speaking at a United Nations conference Yeah, uh, on, yeah, on spirituality and religion. It's something I'll never forget. I mean, these were all spirit channelers and mediums. They were basically sorcerers. Uh, supported by the United Nations, and then and then there was me uh, there. And um, this is the stuff that has open support within these kind of bodies. Now, I'm not saying there aren't people in the UN who are just trying to keep people fed or keep from shooting each other. It would be unfair for me to lump all them within it. All right. I'm saying is, is the United Nations, just like our government and other things, anytime you get a large institution with large power, it becomes a tool for the evil one. And that's how Babylon functions. Babylon functions is when you get a lot of people, their labor, their force, their resources, you combine it in an institution or a group, and then Babylon comes in and takes over the rudder. Right. And that's the warning to the Christian community. When we set up people uh, to be figureheads in our church, you know, in, our, in our culture, our media, certain religious groups become you know, representative of who we are in the public. Uh, we're just ripe for the pickings. And, and these guys have been able to use these various structures. Uh, I talk quite a bit about the evolution of foundations and how foundations have now supplanted nation states at directing the social structure of the world. Mm. Uh, guys like Bill Gates and other guys, yeah. what, what happens mm-hmm. is they have multiplied their billions by many manifold because they will offer matching funds to cash-strapped education communities if they'll match the funds. If they'll teach what they want, they'll give them a dollar for every 10 they have. So what they do is they end up getting entire groups changing their education initiative because of the seed money they need to keep these places afloat. And and they've turned out to to actually dwarf the activities. You know... um, some of the famous quotes of groups like the foundations were from the Dodd Commission report and the Ford Foundation, where they admitted on the record that the purpose of these foundations were, were to merge the governments of the Soviet Union and the United States together. <laughs> and they wrote that officially on the record. This is during the middle of the Cold War in the 1950s when they said this was their purpose. Um, but as, as things have proceeded forward, though, the thing that they always have is a total hatred for monotheists and their beliefs and the, and the restriction on the influence they have over the lives of people who believe in a personal God to which they're accountable to and from which they draw their ultimate morality. If the state cannot drop its own morality based upon what its enge- techno-engineers have in store for us, then that is a problem. 
And one of their strategies they have published and said they'll do is to pit us against each other. Hence the war on terror. Right. Uh, wow. And it is, today it's expanded. I show a clear link and chain to what used to be just the Darwinism that led to selective breeding amongst people. You know, we, we had churches back in the 20s that would have drives in their churches to sterilize people. What? People who you thought were like a little slow, you know. I mean, I don't mean like couldn't ha- function, but just a little bit on the slow side. Haul <laughs> right. them in there and sterilize them. That is... You know? Um, and, you know, if they had to do more to them, then so be it. You know? Of course, of course, we had churches back in the early 20th century that were having KKK drives, too. Right. And they yeah. were bringing the KKK. What, what did the KKK say? The KKK said... We are Christian warriors. We are fighting for white Christian America. We have other religions coming into our country, okay, the Jews and the Catholics coming in. We've got to stop these other cultures outside of America coming in, taking over, enforcing their foreign religions on us. Hmm. Wow. Now, what does that sound like today going on? Hmm. In fact, I will show that a lot of our Christian leaders that are the best-known Christian leaders now they're still dressing in robes with crusader crosses and swords. Wow. And I have the photos of these guys who are household names and Christian celebrities who, who are going and having their little crusades behind closed doors. Really? And, yeah. People and that household names. Yes. Wow. And, um, <clears throat> but with the transhumanism movement that has grown out of the selective breeding, now they can go in and make designer people right at the fundamental level of the molecule and the mm-hmm. DNA. Um, I was shocked when I did some reading in the literature from the transhumanism community that the, the leading voices, the guys who really are considered the fathers of transhumanism, mm-hmm. in their conferences, they openly praise Lucifer. Yeah. They, cha- they challenge Jehovah and extend their praise toward Lucifer. Not that that should cause any concern for a Christian. I'm sure they're, you know, salt-of-the-earth people. Uh, <laughs> but, but again, a, a mosaic, methodically, you start putting it together. Sure. You yeah. see what happens where people who believe in an objective right and wrong ethic, okay? And I'm not talking about fine points of when the rapture happens or how often you have the Lord's Supper. I'm talking about the fact that every life has value, that not only should babies not be killed, but old people should not be killed. Uh, right. That the rights of minorities should be protected. Just because you're in the 49% doesn't mean you're a non-person. Right. These kind of values have, have legacies in natural law that's talked about in the early pages of the Bible and further evolved and were cemented and man's knowledge of God's ways became clear, and certainly in the Sermon on the Mount. But, right. but these things are not exclusive to Jews or Christians. Muslims believe it. Other cultures believe it as well, too. And they're all systematically being removed. And we, we are actually assisting them. When we go out and fight other people who have differences in their faith with us, but have those same general values, when we go fight and we kill each other, one, we drive everybody away from considering God. But we do the bidding of these guys who wish to destroy us all, and right. wish to set up man as God instead. 
Sure. You know, it's interesting, You just touching on the whole race, you know, the white race side of things. Yeah. It's interesting because as an Asian American myself, mm-hmm. it's just weird because I grew up in a, you know, a, a bilingual home. And so it was kind of a different world at home than it was out in the world. And there's this joke that, that I once heard from a fellow Asian Christian pastor guy who I thought was really funny, but it spoke to kind of what you were saying is that, you know, this idea of in heaven, you know, all the nations will be there, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it challenged his view. And, and, and the joke was basically that, you know, I thought in heaven, we're going to be wearing white robes and mm-hmm. we're going to have white wings and we're going to be on these white fluffy clouds mm-hmm. and everybody is white, you know, right. <laughs> that, that uh. stigma is there. And I, I even sense that, you know, just uh, prior to being saved, just looking at cultural Christianity, if you will, I guess you can call it that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not trying to be racial about it, but just, just there was that sort of feel to it. So I think it, it's for me, someone, you know, coming from a different culture, at least in the roots, uh, I can see how these things have been systematically put in place because even then I kind of knew like there's something off about some of these ideals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, you're, you're definitely ringing true to, to some of the sentiments that I've had just in my personal life, looking at yeah. Christianity from, from outside, you know, looking in, uh, but even within, you know, I mean, I think that's why it's been interesting for me in my journey, just because once I was saved and it didn't take long before I started to look at some of these, you know, more, I guess, fringy topics, if you will, uh, with shows like Future Quake, it, it just seemed like people, when I tried to bring up these conversations and, and talk about some of these issues and stuff like that, it, it was difficult because they just have their set ways. And, and even if you present evidence, it doesn't, doesn't really, you know, do anything right. for them. So, right. uh, so, uh, so I applaud you in trying to put together a, uh, extensive, uh, <laughs> persuasive, yeah. Uh, piece of work to to uh, you know just just shed light on this stuff and you know even if people don't read it today it may be one of those things uh, yeah. beyond your uh, lifetime that can make a right. huge impact. Right. And speaking of reading it, I'm just going to have to apologize right now because just some of these bombshells that you've been dropping here, I just have my brain can't work fast enough to come up with a. Uh, <laughs> a remark about them and I just am kind of left either using the word crazy insane or just oh my <laughs> that sounds re- like sounds like future quake to me <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I mean it is I'm, this is just mind blowing to me and I okay so let me just get on point here which is you have written so many of these volumes already I'm guessing since you're not giving us links or Amazon pages right. to find them, <laughs> what's the plan? Is it all yeah. going to come out at once? Are you? What are you doing here? Well, you know that's a good point. It's a fair question, and it's something I have wrestled with over the last two years. There has been a strong temptation for me to meter these out one at a time, right? And I'm sort of working without a net, just like when I did Future Quake, of not having a precedent to really know for sure what the right answer is. So I'm, I'm calling it as it comes. But my, my feeling is I have already restructured how I want to do this as it's expanded three or four times, even since I finished the first couple of volumes. Mm-hmm. So 
maintaining the flexibility of not having released it until I get at least the, the draft of the last little bit manuscript done. Mm-hmm. If I got to shift some material, if I need to change even the titles, even though, because when you put titles of the, of the volumes or the chapters, it provides a framework for the reader, the mind, to understand and process how this fits into the big picture. And I've recognized that I've had to have a little flexibility on how do I package this so it just doesn't meander off in a bunch of rabbit trails, right. but, but has an orderly structure that leads to an inevitable conclusion. And so what I have found is, is that since the work has continued to expand, uh, and I've been able to, to, to really split up the volumes into more precise topics, that it has been good for me at this point to keep my powder dry Right. And to get these things wrapped up and done. It is frustrating for me because uh, people think you're dead or you gave up on it. You know, <laughs> you said you're going to have it done X, Y, Z. And, you know, you don't. And then and then real life pops up. You know, right. I've been working sure. on business taxes for the last week, you know, taking me away. Life has other things. I can't just focus 100 percent on it. I'm, I'm giving the majority of my time to it. Mm-hmm. But then I had to pick up and, and remember now I have 100 references here. What was I doing with that? <laughs> How do I in the world do I fit all this stuff together? I'm overwhelmed with data. Yeah. Okay. Thousands and thousands of, of articles I still have left to cite, much less stacks of books and things. So I get intimidated by the work as it's come to, but I still feel more than ever that I'm, I'm going at it the way that I want to go at it. And the reason is what something you all just mentioned a minute ago is that I don't know if anybody's going to care to read it when I'm done. But I'm sort of looking at the person who's at the yard sale 25 years from now. Right. And it's going through and seeing the books marked for a nickel. Yeah. It's totally legit. They see this old moldy thing and they get it just because it, it looks weird. And they start, you know, they start thumbing through it and they think, man, I can sort of connect with this guy, even though he's this really old guy, he's dead now, but I can connect with what he's saying. And, you know, that's happened to me. Um, yeah. My favorite theologian is a guy by the name of George Pember. He wrote a book called Earth's yeah. Earliest Ages. Yeah. I mean, 100 years ahead of its time. And he wrote it in the 1870s, I believe. Right. And, you know, that guy is just like he was here today. It's like he walked right out of an Ancient of Days conference. Right. But he wrote it over 100 years. Now it's 150 years ago. And so I have a connection with that guy based upon a book so far long ago. And if we can connect, you know, that connection happens now through our shows. Right. P- new people still are, we're still getting about 100 people a day listening to Future Quake. Right. And new people all the time. The Internet's an amazing thing. People could come and find it on their own time. And then, and then I don't know how many people have emailed me just in the last six months. says, I found your show, and I went and listened to all 300 shows. Yeah. Wow. You know, you know, they're, you know as you are, they're, they're two-hour-plus shows most cases. And they, they went through all of them. And so it's, it's amazing once you do at work and you just you take the effort to put it out there, how, how it's like the bread on the water just keeps coming back. Yeah. Sure. And so yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to look long-term at this. The, as far as the release date, sort of the method to my madness I'm inclined toward is to maybe, once I've gotten a bow on all of them, is to probably officially release them maybe two months apart. Mm. And so that'll give enough time for somebody to get volume one, get it digested, and be just the right time for volume two. Yeah. And it'll give me a little time to come on Canary Cry and other yeah. places, and we'll talk and 
detail about volume one. It'll be just about time to rotate back around and talk yeah. about volume two. Uh, so that's a little bit of my thinking. It's, I'm sure it's not perfect. Um, I'll second guess myself all the time. People will tell me I did it wrong. But it's but your way. That's what I have a piece about. Go. People <laughs> tell me, you know, I, I got to get platoons of editors and all this other good stuff. Right. And I'm going to rather write my extremely long sentences and long paragraphs and do it the way I like and not waste my time on marketing and other kind of stuff, uh, on, on doing things that aren't just set right with who I am. Yeah, sure. Well, let me be possibly the first or maybe the second, I don't know, I don't know who you talk to, to say that the feeling that I get from what you've revealed in this interview is that the volume is going to open up a whole new level to all of this. A whole new level to um, the connections, the type of connections, the, dare I say it, conspiracies, the, all that stuff. Because I know just from what you've revealed here, you know, it's a, it's a whole new world just from what you've been teasing. So I just want to encourage you as a brother yeah. to just continue and keep going with uh, where you're led on, on how... Uh, you know, the release will go, but you know, I'd pick it up for a nickel at a garage sale. I'll tell you. Well, that. I don't know if it's worth a nickel, but I appreciate the, <laughs> the kind word. You might want to wait till it goes on sale. So they, <laughs> so they mark it down after a little longer, there you but, go. but you know, it's just going to be out there and if people, hopefully, hopefully my friends might think it might be a nifty thing to hang on to and glance at. Yeah. Uh, the most likely scenario is it will be met with a collective yawn. Yeah. And well, then people say, who, who's this guy? Who knows him? But if people do read it like in, in the traditional Christian field that get on the message board stuff, they will hate it. They yeah. will probably have book burnings of it, I'm, I'm anticipating, if they well, even that, care, care to do it. <laughs> probably means you're doing something right then. Yeah. I'm starting to think, and that's the litmus test of it. You know, <laughs> yeah. you're, you're sort of known by who hates you these days. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure that's probably true with you all, too. Y'all probably honked off some, uh, some people, too. But, you know, yeah. I, I've had some thoughts just the last couple of days because this gives me some more time to think. And that's why guys like this Robert Hyde guy and, and his friendship and all, our Christian friendships are important to us because it helps us work out things in our mind. And, and, and there are two streams, and they seem like they're, they're, they're conflicting, but they really aren't, that I really feel are needed in our Christian culture. One is we need to have the freedom in our own discussions, in our church discussions, in shows like yours, to be able to set a high standard for intellectual pursuit right. where we have academic freedom to read stuff that may be considered forbidden or yeah. stuff that's not perfect in our exact doctrine but has some good points in it, or people could come from left field, and, what we, and to be able to extract out some things that might be useful for us. And, and to even ask the questions that that are shameful to even ask those questions or a different way to look at Bible passages or things like this. We need that in a high level of intellectual rigor that we've lost in the Christian culture that who has become very anti-intellectualism, but we also need greater simplicity in our, in our faith and our understanding about God because the more I've worked through all this complicated data, it keeps getting me back to the fact that when you're confronted with a difficult topic, if you pick the humble answer that requires humility, that requires compassion for other people, 
and reconciliation, particularly for the stranger and people outside your culture, then it is almost certainly the will of God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you stay with those things, and those are really amplifications of the Sermon on the Mount and the two greatest commandments. Yeah. That, that really, everything could be boiled down to that. Yeah. And you know what's funny? Even, even the Muslims agree with that. Right. They have admitted in writing, the first time they've ever write a collective document, that it really all boils down to love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength to love your neighbors yourself. This is something we know endemic in our hearts. Anybody who fears God of some nature or not, that those things are the only answer. And it really is the answer every time we're dealing with people on how to resolve stuff. And, and, and the conclusion I've come to is that we need both a greater simplicity to get clarity in what matters and a priority in our Christian walk and how to determine a proper ethic. We also need greater rigor, intellectual rigor, side by side. And rather than being polar p- apart, they actually meet at the other side. And the real opponent of, of these two movements is an excessive clinging to dogma. Yeah. Mm. And I don't mean not being clear in your doctrine and your belief. I don't mean that. Okay. I still, the, God's Word, the Bible, is the source uh, on where we can know with certainty and collectively the will of God is in, in, in the world that it is. But when we go beyond taking the, 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 the individual truths in God's Word, and begin to build a structure out of those truths that is a proprietary structure and cannot be reassembled in any other form. You know, I, 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 what I look at is each, each statement within the Bible is like a brick of reality. Yeah. And that brick of reality is as sure and as integrity as anything. Yeah. But then people begin to build structures out of it. And they take rebar to reinforce it, what, which is called context, the context they give these statements. And then they build an edifice they call a doctrine. Mm. And what happens is eventually they look at that doctrine and that edifice as the actual source of the integrity of truth rather than the individual blocks that came from the very mouth of God. Right. And we all do it innocently, and there's a natural propensity to want to build a workable structure we can set on, rely on, and it's called a doctrine. But we never question and think, wait a minute, those same blocks could be rearranged with the context rerouted and have, an, have another edifice of doctrine built that can be just as honest and just as trustworthy as, as the building blocks of God's Word as others. Yeah, And it's a healthy thing for us, for mature Christians who've been Christians for a while, to, to continue to test ourselves in those regards. And when we calcify into a doctrine, when we're not even willing to reconsider when the Lord's return is going to be or how often we need to have the Lord's Supper or what day we worship every day or even the clothes that we wear or other kind of things like this, when we're not even willing to consider that, we, we are an enemy on both of those because that kind of calcified dogma eliminates the simplicity of our faith, and it also prevents the free and open inquiry of being a true seeker of God. Wow. Well said. Well put. Well said. Yeah, and just just as you were talking about the Word of God being just the fundamental bricks of reality, I just pulled up a couple scriptures, and 
one of them, <laughs> it's interesting because all the stuff you were telling us about, you know, just all the evils and, and you know, the money mm-hmm. and who you know and all yeah. this stuff. You look at First Timothy 6, 9, and 10, and it kind of summarizes everything you're saying. Uh, it says, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desire desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And then, of course, the verse 10, most people know, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then another one popped in my head for, you know, just, and I've mentioned this one before, uh, you know, the circles we run in, we don't necessarily uh, find the favor of the crowd, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, Luke six twenty six, woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used uh, used to treat the false prophets in the same way. So right. you know, uh, it, it speaks right into, you know, just a double standard or not a double standard, right. uh, two edged sword type of way where, you know, on one hand, you're talking about these Christian leaders who are sort of spoken well of, you know, and they're right. sort of put on a pedestal. And at the same time, you know, don't don't get too discouraged about uh, people hating on you because, you know. Right. Woe to you when, when they speak well of you, right? So, well, and look look at the Hall of Faith in the book of Hebrews. The, the highest regarded guys in the kingdom of heaven lived in caves, were na- right. naked most of the time, and were hungry most of the time. And it says the, the world was not worthy of them. Uh, if one thing I could just make clear right now, so, I, you know, you talked about, you know, what I alluded to on the powers that be that really run the show in our earth. Um, and I don't want people to feel negative because in the second half right. of that book, I write about how Jesus confronted the New World Order and how he defeated it. Mm. He, he defeated the principalities and powers and all of what, the, what I call the cosmic rebels, whether it's the guys who Ooh. came down in Genesis 6, the, the, the third of the angels that rebelled with Satan, or, or any of these, these cosmic hosts, and their earthly henchmen that run Babylon. Their, their racket here on earth. Jesus confronted them, and his three-year ministry was a, was a battle, not ultimately even against Pharisees, but it was against the principalities and powers that they represented. And, mm-hmm. and, and he talked to them directly. And, and there's a passage, I believe in Colossians 2, that it says that by his death on the cross, he disarmed the principalities and powers making an open spectacle of them. Mm. And if we remember, you know, we, we might think people who are your listeners on here, they may be Alex Jones listeners or other kind of shows and things like this. They want to resist the New World Order. They want to stand up and fight something. And I applaud them for their zeal and for caring about something and their own material wealth. And I want to encourage that. But I want to tell you, if you want to win that battle, if you want to be a successful uh, revolutionary then follow the path of Christ. What he did on that cross was that he showed the ultimate in compassion for other people, in self-sacrificial love. And that is what the New World Order cannot run against. It, it, it is all built on a Darwinistic system of self-preservation where a man will sell out his own brother or his mother for his own skin. And the whole system operates that man can be controlled by positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement pertaining to his own survival and well-being. And the Christian ethic identified by Christ on the cross says, I'm going to stand for something other than my own well-being. I am going to be my brother's keeper. 
I'm going to show supernatural love, compassion to the point of death for the sake of others. And, and when, when a society begins to do that, the new world order comes totally unglued because it cannot function when man cannot be manipulated by his own self-preservation. So if you want to kick the new world order where it hurts, you go out in your community and you start looking for people who are helpless and you help them. People who are powerless, be their advocate. People who are voiceless, give them a voice. That is the work of the Lord, and it will directly battle the principalities and powers running the new world order. Amen, brother. Wow. That is, I think that just sums it up right there. That is beautiful. Well, you know, this has, as I've continued to say throughout, this interview has just really been incredible and been, um, I'd say, definitely one of my favorites. This is about episode 65 for us. and 66. 66. And, you know, it just wouldn't be a Canary Cry radio podcast if I didn't buckle down and ask you where the Nephilim fit in all this. <laughs> <laughs> you mean long ago or today? Um, let's, let's go today. Let's keep it relevant. Today? Um, or you know, whatever. I mean, you, 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 you know show. the debate. You know the debate in our circles. Some mm-hmm. people say that there's mothers out there having Nephilim babies. Right. Uh, this other stuff's populating. You know, I, I, I look myself at the prophecy in Daniel about the two legs of the iron mixed with clay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it says they will not mingle themselves with the seed of men. And I have to ask myself, who is the they that is not the seed of men? Right. And what are they doing there? So I don't have an answer to that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and finally, hopefully, maybe I'm starting to mature slightly since even since future quake in the in the fact that i'm willing to say more i don't know right and i'm willing to accept the mystery of the lord and 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 to actually revel in it that there's a god who knows mysteries that i don't understand but one thing i don't regret even though as future quake started to come to a close i started talking a little bit less and less about some of those kind of topics i don't regret for one minute having covered every one of those crazy topics in those 300 shows yeah. Because it was a liberating process for me. The process of asking forbidden questions, the questions that you would never ask in polite company in your local church, <laughs> was an empowering process. And it helped me to start asking more questions that should have been asked. And I want to keep asking those questions, no matter where they lead me. And all this stuff that we've debated about supernatural things and whether the Nephilim, May re- you know, are they around? Are they on earth now? Will they return? I have some thoughts in Revelation. I, I believe at the sixth seal that the, the judged uh, heavenly powers like the, uh, you know, in the Michael Heiser stuff, the, the Benai Elohim running the nations, they're going to be judged by the, by the minor Sanhedrin, the 24 elders in Revelation. Mm-hmm. And when those indictments are open, those seals are in the sins of these guys. The, the, the false religion in the name of Christ unveiled in, in seal one, 
the the uh, bloodthirsty civil dominance and tyranny over the earth in seal two, the economic control over the earth in seal three, the the control over mankind's even health and well-being supernaturally mm. in seal four. All of those have a specific judgment from Armageddon to the great city Babylon to the great whore Babylon to even death and Hades being thrown in the lake of fire. They're all judged specifically later in Revelation. And that whole process is a process of judgment of the heavenly powers and their earthly henchmen throughout it. And in that, I see a lot of spooky stuff happen. Um, this would be a topic of another show, but I have come to the inclination that Wormwood, for example, is another manifestation of a, of a heavenly being that's been known in history as Diana, or Hecate, who used the same name Wormwood and had the same figures talked about in that passage, and that she is probably invoked by her leader, by her people, just like Dionysus worship, and is led to, through a, a massive blood sacrifice when, when the great waters or hydros or people are, are killed in a mass sacrifice, which facilitates the opening of the abyss. So, so when, when, if these things happen, as, as I see, you're going to have all sorts of bizarre creatures of which the Nephilim may be the least of our problems at that point. Mm. <laughs> but right. I hope yeah. it's not going to be our problem. <laughs> sure. Okay? I hope it's going to be, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I, 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 you know it's, it's a flux kind of thing. I don't want to have an argument with somebody about end times right. because I'm open-minded enough to know I see through a mirror darkly. Mm-hmm. And right. as long as somebody's open-minded and they can think out loud with me, that's great. If they, if they start getting dogmatic and circling the wagons, then it's no longer fruitful. Yeah. But um, I, I, I'm coming more to the inclination that, and I, I, you know, Peter Goodgames had a big influence on me. I, I think there's solid evidence associating a rapture with the sixth seal and yeah. the beginning of the day of the Lord. Whenever the gig's up, everybody on earth knows that they have, the Lord's wrath has come, and the and the 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 heavenly host is thrown down the earth, and then judgment begins. At that point, I don't know if there's going to be any more saints. Uh, aside from a small number, maybe in Israel, and a, a tiny number that is, that for because of the patriarchs may be preserved. Aside from that, I don't know about any other saints past that period of time. Mm. So I, you know, I don't encourage anybody to figure, hey, I'll hang around and <laughs> you know I'll wait afterwards. So sure, you know, it might be rough, but you know, it will make it. Um, I think that's a time of, of terrible judgment. Uh, you know, um, I, I, I still think that Thessalonians is pretty clear that, that at least for some limited time, we will see the rise of the Antichrist uh, and that he will refine his Laodicean church. And some of them will obtain the white robes of martyrdom mm-hmm. uh, for their own betterment. Um, so, you know, we're going to see a lot of crazy stuff coming on the earth. You know, it says that men's hearts will fail them for the things they see come upon yeah. the earth. Yeah. And yeah. so uh, Nephilim may be a part of it. I think some even worse stuff's going to be out there. And, you know, they're all going to come in one big battle royal there in the Valley of Jezreel. And they're all coming. You know, Hal Lindsey thought they were all going to fight each other. But I think it's pretty clear they're coming to fight our Lord who's returning. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In fact, I believed it so much, I had that picture on the side of the future mobile and drove around in traffic with it. <laughs> Except I had pictures... Of Jesus, you know, with his vestment dipped in blood and 
the sword proceeding from him. And behind him on horseback was Dr. Future and Tom Bionic and, <laughs> yeah. and Merv, Mr. Future, and Pyro, and just about every major guest we had on Future Quake on horseback. And that uh, awesome. Yeah, yeah, our guests got a kick out of it when they could see themselves <laughs> on horseback uh, riding with it. But um, so that's all. All, right. all I know are long winded answers, and that was about the Nephilim. So no, um, I like it. <laughs> it. You know what? I'm glad I know as much about the Nephilim as we've all studied because if I run into one, I want to know how to deal with them. Yeah. It's sure. just, just like zombies. You know, <laughs> once you get acclimated zombies, uh, you know, you know, keep a pair of scissors handy. You know and and uh, the same with these other kind of guys. And that's why I think it's good for people, even studying end times and the different models of the rapture and everything. Study them all. Learn them. Because any of us could be wrong. Right. We find out things don't pan out like we want. Um, there's going to be a lot of people whose faith are shaken because their pet model didn't fit. Right. You know, uh, their, yeah. their, their own... Uh, you know, the little mural they have behind the, 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 the podium didn't fit right. And so we're going to have to strengthen those people and say, no, no, the Bible's not wrong. You know, we just, we just put the pieces together wrong, but, you know, it's all okay. Lord's still on the throne. So we, yeah. we want to be there to equip people when the time gets rough. You know, of course, then I, you know, I read about other people like John MacArthur and some other people popular that says it's okay to take the mark of the beast. Yeah, right. <laughs> that is no big deal, you know. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm not in that camp, you know. I don't recommend any of your listeners take the mark of the beast. So <laughs> I've gone I've gone out on a limb on that one. You even heard it here, it, folks. Even Basil, even if it's on uh, another part of the body, oh, yeah. I don't think it's a good idea. Yeah, I, I I would I would just say take a pass or move back in the line or something like that. But, <laughs> just let so, as many cutters keep go moving as back. You know, that, that, that whole book of Revelation has an emphasis on sealing. And, and the, the word forehead, I think it's metapan in the Greek, is only used in the book of Revelation. Mm. And that whole, that whole book is talking about people's foreheads and whose name is on it. Yeah. Right. You've yeah. got 144,000 with God's name on their forehead. You've got, um, you know, the people that take the mark of the beast have their name on their forehead. The, the, the scorpions attack people or the locusts out of the abyss according to whose name is on your forehead. Mm-hmm. And eventually it ends in the New Jerusalem with the people of God with God's own name on their forehead. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. So forehead. Must block that pineal gland, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Future, as I've said, I think for about the fourth or fifth time, this has been uh, just an incredible time talking with you. I've enjoyed it immensely, and I'm sure, Gons, how do you like it? Oh, I loved it. Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your night, sleep probably. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Yeah, it's pretty late us. over there now. Well, yeah, it's a little past two, quarter after two. Well, you know, one thing, it felt like just yet another long-winded Future Quake show, <laughs> with the exception of it had two competent hosts. That was the one difference. <laughs> well, I'm glad we could uh, revive the spirit of Future Quake for this episode. Hey, and if I offended anybody in your listenership with the stuff I said, mm-hmm. don't take me with a grain of salt. I don't have a clue what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, And also just- send, send all your complaints to his email <laughs> inbox. <laughs> Yeah, and I will I will weep over it and spend countless hours trying to write a thirty page email asking your apology. We will promptly respond. 
Yeah. <laughs> I would I would I would rather they just assume that I don't want to know what I'm talking about, maybe say a prayer for me. <laughs> you can probably release a book later in life of just responses, Q and A with Dr. Future. Yeah. With well, uh Well what about for all like the, the bad words and the little ampersands and other stuff that they told me? Should should I edit that stuff out? Uh, just put a little tasteful, just, you know. Just put a sickness next to it. Yeah. That's what everybody knows. <laughs> well, some people have actually said derogatory things about me that I loved certain people groups, oh, and they wow. said that in a derogatory style. So mm. that kind of derogatory statement I can make. If if there's a there's a people group you hate and you accuse me of loving them, then that's okay. You can tell. <laughs> <laughs> our our listeners, I believe, are much classier than that. They, uh, well, they prefer, you know, they've all got very large thesauruses and they okay. like to use it extensively. So this is just not a venue for hate speech? Not yet, but who okay. knows after this. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> all right, buddy. Will you get back to work? You uh, let us know when you're ready to come back on. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to complain if you send us a copy of your book and uh, maybe a little press packet and then, um, you know. Keep us on uh, the top of your list for when your volumes start coming out. Oh, you're at the top of the list. Don't worry uh, about that. Ah, uh, yeah. Even, even if you don't want. In fact, I may cause the cancellation of Canary Cry. Just to avoid <laughs> having me on at that point once I take a look at it. <laughs> uh, I hope that doesn't happen, but there's a risk that that may have. Hey, uh, w- w- what's going on next week? When are you going to have a real guest on? <laughs> Well, as seeing as how this is our last episode, <laughs> and and the, the the how organized we are yeah. about our future guests. Oh so, yeah, no, I think uh, I think you're the last one on our our list of planned guests. So we're just gonna have to make it up from here. Okay, well it'll go uphill from there. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. This this is a good one to show if you want to make the next guest look good. So. Okay, uh, well, I'll, I'll just take that as your blessing to continue making episodes here. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I just want to tell everybody out there, I love them to death, even when we, we disagree or whatever, because this is all hard stuff. Yeah. We're all struggling with hard stuff, but you know what? It's fun and enjoyable working this stuff out while we know the Lord loves us. And, and I, I, for one, I'm going to be set down and told 90% of what I thought I understood was wrong. Yeah. And somehow he still let me in. And so I just say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, because I know that got the publican in. He was justified knowing nothing other than to say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. So um, that's what I'm counting on. And the rest of y'all give me slack on that and give these guys a slack and, and keep pushing the envelope, you know, keep asking the tough stuff and just be secure in the Lord while you're doing it. Mm-hmm. And uh, everybody just enjoy that we have the freedom to do this. You know, appreciate these guys put long, long hours putting this stuff together. And, uh, you know, if you got a suggestion or maybe another way they look at some, say it in a nice way, but respect the fact that they're put to effort so you got something to listen to rather than some of these goofballs who are on cable TV or elsewhere on the radio. Mm. Amen, brother. Well, everybody, there you have it. Dr. Future, one more time, thank you so much, man, for coming on the show. Well, thank you again for the privilege. And... Until we talk again, may your future always be bright. Boom.
That was our interview with Doc Fuch. Like I said many, 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 many times during the interview, it was awesome and awesome. And I feel so happy that we could bring a little bit of the, the uh, Future Quake vibe uh, to the Canary Cry radio listeners because there's a lot of former or current Future Quake listeners right now that listen to the show. So what's up, all you Future Quakers? And, you know, he, he coined the phrase Canarians. Right. And so maybe just, we can just convert. That, just let or, that roll around on your tongue for a little bit. Yeah. yeah and okay. uh, I'm sure people got a lot from this conversation. And I'm sure if you looked at your clocks and you sat through this entire thing, it reminds you of an old Future Quake episode because <laughs> some of those were very, very long. Yeah, the last one, episode 300, was like five and a half or six hours long. Yeah. Um, okay, so there you go, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Uh, remember, as we said at the top of the show, you can go to the support tab or the store tab on canarycryradio.com, leave a gift or buy a shirt, go to iTunes or whatever app you're listening to us on, and give us a thumbs up or a rating or a review is greatly, greatly appreciated. We thank you all. And until next time, think outside the cage. Cry Radio. Ugh. <laughs>